Hey kids, it's Zach. I'm sure I sound like Rob because I found my way into his brain. Don't ask me how I got here because all I want to do now is get the F out. I took an immediate left turn when I encountered the portion dedicated to Adventure Time, but that just landed me in a field of extremely obscure knowledge about the bonus features on all of the Lost DVDs. Thankfully, I found the Cinemodities compartment, and while the 18's box was too small for me to fit in, there's the Pixel Perfect segment that seems to be firing on all cylinders. Rob really wants you to stream it on Disney Plus nonstop, and so do I. And once you've got that going, don't forget to swipe your credit card to help Zack escape Rob's mind before he gets trapped in the Law & Order's Voo compartment. Night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob, a stricken man. Not stricken with illness, not stricken with sadness, well, a little bit of sadness, but mostly stricken with excitement. Because I think it's been a while, Zach, but we have a first on Cinemodities. It's a first that I know I think both of us have been waiting for for quite some time. I oh, never yeah. thought it would come in this form with the, with the straight story. But for the first time ever on Cinemodities, we are finally discussing a David Lynch film. <laughs> we need like six minutes of the goat scream. <laughs> For this breaking ground. We finally do it. I think, I, I'm pretty sure we referenced David Lynch in our first episode ever. And it's taken us to what? What is this, 94? 90, episode 95? Something like that? Yeah, and we're getting a- finally getting to one. Yep, and I, again, so weird. I was thinking about that. Uh, into the, like my suggested this to rob so odd that it is a december's plus choice film (laughs) that got us to our first david lynch i think when it comes to cinematis maybe just rob and i's overall affinity for david lynch i think it's oddly appropriate that we're beginning or introducing our audience if they've not already experienced any david lynch we're showing them probably his most accessible film yeah yeah that's a that's a good point um you know there's no uh horrifying things to look at there's no really weird surrealism uh on the surface like you know say with blue velvet or or, um eraser head or anything like that it's also the only david lynch movie that's rated g right (laughs) yeah that's uh that's and it's all the only david lynch film released by the walt disney company (laughs) david lynch's disney movie that's rated g what a what a time to be alive (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this movie is an anomaly. It's weird. Okay, because we'll get into more about this dissecting this movie. Um, because it's one of those movies, folks, that we, we we can lay out the like you know sometimes we can spend hours laying out the plot of these things. And this is a movie that I think we can explain the plot in about what five minutes, ten tops. This is not a very uh, involved narrative, but yeah. most of the meat of this film comes from the analysis of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very simple story. 
Um, but it just very straight story, Rob. Very, very, very straight story. I mean, straight in terms of like, I don't know when you're on ground, there's some ups and downs, but it's all pretty straight. <laughs> so I, I guess I think where I wanted to start with this, Zach, we have to talk a little bit about David Lynch because we haven't really ever, sure. ever explicitly got into that. Um, I think Zach and I's context, historical context for David Lynch coalesces. They come together at a certain point, end of high school with a racer head, finding out about a racer head. I believe that's where it kind of all comes together. But I would be remiss if I did not um, explain that for years, my parents were telling me about Twin Peaks and I never watched it and I never knew who David Lynch was or how he was related to it. But, um, you know, when when I started watching Lost, when it was airing on TV, my parents watched it with me. I loved it. And my parents were like, oh, this is good. And they kept saying to me throughout that whole first and kind of half of the second season, they were like, this makes me think of Twin Peaks. Like, it's so weird. There's so much that you don't know what's going on. And when something is like information's dropped, it's just so strange. And it's very aesthetically intriguing. And for some reason, my parents were reminded of Twin Peaks by Lost. Now that I've seen all of Lost and all of Twin Peaks multiple times over, I don't think they have a lot of overlap, except for maybe small bits and pieces. But for years, my parents were telling me, oh, you love Lost, you're going to love Twin Peaks. I never watched Twin Peaks till college. But as Zach knows, a formative time in my life was while we were together in high school, I discovered James Joyce, specifically Finnegan's Wake and the, the oddity of Finnegan's Wake, the greatest written work ever. At me at that one. I'll fight you. I don't have a Twitter, but at me. <laughs> and uh, it's, it, I was so into James Joyce that I started to branch out. I was like, what else is really breaking the rules that have been established. And that's how I found out about Mark Danieluski with House of Leaves. That's how I found out about a lot of weird music. Uh, Metal Machine music by Lou Reed is a great thing that came out of it. But nothing was as big and momentous as when I was looking for strange media, I found Eraserhead. I didn't see Eraserhead, I just read about it. And that leads to the grand old story, which I believe we've told on this podcast before, Zach, when Zach and I were walking through our halls and we saw that dude with the eraser head shirt. Yep. And yep. Zach asked me, what the fuck is that? And I said, I, I've never, I, I don't think I told him I hadn't seen the movie, but I was like, yo, that's some weird shit from what I've heard. And that was before either of us had seen it. I think that inspired Zach to go find it, to watch it, to share it with me. And hell, it, it's never gone down. <laughs> our affinity for David Lynch from that moment on has never left. Uh, David Lynch is, is shaped, I think, both of, of a major part of both of the ways that we look at, you know, not only cinema, but media and storytelling and catharsis and understanding what makes something intriguing. And maybe it's not always in an enjoyable way. Maybe it's sometime in a, in a very horrific way. Maybe sometimes it's in a very sad way, like I think this movie produces. But I, I, I'm going to throw it over to Zach to give his adjectives and praise for David Lynch. <laughs> but I, we really, whenever we say implicitly or just off the cuff that we have an affinity for David Lynch, we, we really say, like, he gets the bust in the hall of directors at the restaurant. He gets the biggest bust, maybe. Yes, Rob's not wrong. I'm glad because he's telling this. I'm listening to this story, folks. I'm like, why isn't he talking about the guy with the t shirt? Because the guy with the t shirt is the linchpin <laughs> to all this. Like, that's, that's how, not a that's joke. When, that's when our David Lynch 
histories came together. But there was that James Joyce stuff I had to give before. Well, sure, sure, yes. There's the James Joyce part of Rob at the end of high school that I really wasn't familiar with. I remember hearing parts of that, but Rob kind of kept that away from me. He kept that with the other the the other people he talked to at the time. I was I was never part of that. When Rob compartmentalizes the part of his parts of his brain, I don't know whether he still does it now, but at least back in high school, that part I was never. I, I never had any foot in that world. You got the guitar hero part. <laughs> well, that part was over by that time for all intents and purposes. But uh, no, so like, yes, the guy with the t-shirt really is. I'm pretty sure this podcast wouldn't exist if it weren't for that guy with the t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 wish not, I, I wish we knew who he was. I don't even remember. I remember nothing about that m- a moment in our history except the shirt. <laughs> like, I don't well, know I, if he was white, if he was black. It could have been a I, woman. I don't know. <laughs> I've always been tempted to go through the senior year. I'm pretty sure he was... He had to be a sophomore or junior. I, I think if I had a lineup, I could pick him out. I I, I remember him pretty vividly. Okay. Um, I love this. Again, you'd love to know the story behind him and why he had that T-shirt. Yeah. Like that's Hell yeah. Like even like I thought I was weird for the Avatar T-shirt I had made, and considering <laughs> that there is no such thing as Eraserhead licensed apparel, clearly that dude had that T-shirt made too. <laughs> Yeah, there's no uh, official store for Eraserhead, just in case anybody's wondering. No, no uh, Henry Spencer t-shirt's a hot topic, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, almost 10 years later. Uh, but no, I don't want to delve too far into this, because obviously the Eraserhead discussion should be coming up in a few months with the uh, the decade anniversary of the discovery of that. Again, I, I have it marked down somewhere. I know the exact date that I uh, discovered Eraserhead, or well, the first time I ever watched it. And it's truly a date that will live in infamy. Oh, yeah. But to uh, get to Rob's point, though, is that, yes, it is one of those seminal moments. Like, I've always told people, more in college, less now, that there's three movies that are three events in my, oh, God, in my life that kind of changed the way I look at movies. First was Titanic. Second was Star Wars. And third was Eraserhead. If it wasn't for Eraserhead, I, I, I kind of, I never looked at movies anything more than just a way to pass time. I yeah. kind of treated them the way that people treat um I, okay, let me rephrase that. Um, I treated movies the way Disney wants people to treat movies in the form of the Avengers. Mm. It's something to be consumed and then kind of crapped out, and that's all you – that's it. You, you collect movies. You watch them. You go, oh, that was neat. It's something to do. It's it's not any sort of higher academic or intellectual pursuit. It's just something yeah. to kill. It's like playing a video game. I don't care how much you like Call of Duty or Fortnite or insert your favorite game here. There's no intellectual understanding or pursuit of playing that sort of game. Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of treated movies prior to Eraserhead. And it's kind of that that made me kind of go, wow, there's there's more to this world. And unlike Rob, I, I, I discovered movies, but I never had the access to them the way he did much like uh, torrenting out of the womb <laughs> and so yeah again my thing with david lynch is that i think sal and i got into i don't want to say fights but more kind of oh, less fights more more but more of a debate i guess was that like sal's like oh david lynch like i like a racer head and i'm like no like there's no a liking racer head you can't like a racer you can't like something and it's funny, over the last couple of days, I've been thinking of trying to how to how I wanted to frame this discussion. And the best way to describe a racer head, and I think, in my opinion, is that a racer head's a film that tears your soul. It's a okay. A racer head is a nightmare that t- tears your soul in half and literally goes into every single corner of it. And if you're somehow able to survive that sort of uh experience, you've survived and really nothing can crack you at that point, at least on an intellectual level. And that's kind of how I've looked at Lynch over these years, is that every single one of his films is trying to dissect how you 
everything about who you are as a person. And it's up to you to either let him do that or you have to push back against it. Mm. And I've, and by push back, I don't mean like say the films aren't good. That's never my intent with Lynch. But I think I, I cannot ever say I like a David Lynch film. I think the best I can always say is uh, I admire it. Because I think every Lynch film disturbs me on some level. The, the straight story yeah. included. I think every film has some level of disturbing content to it. Because just as disturbing as The Lady in the Radiator is, and of course Rob's going to have to insert the clip in here, but we get in heaven, everything is fine. I think that moment is just as disturbing as the moment in the straight story when we have a static shot of Richard Farnsworth out in straight uh, telling the guy in the bar about the time that he picked off the scout. And then the moment that was discovered that, oh, that's who he was. That moment is just as disturbing as in heaven, everything is fine, but for a completely different reason. Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I think I'm in complete agreement with you. While we have Zach and I have such an affinity, a love for David Lynch, I'm with you, Zach. I don't know if I could say I enjoy any of his movies. It's more the fact that I enjoy that they can make me feel so strongly. And it's feelings that I don't usually get for movies. It's not there's no moment in any David Lynch movie where I'm like, "Yeah, I feel good." It's always like, "Oh fuck, I'm depressed now." And I really love that catharsis. And the straight story hit that nail on the head. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, too, is that because uh, in preparation for this, as Rob knows, I do, and like the audience knows as well, I like going and seeing what, what public opinion is for certain movies. Um, like things like Avengers Endgame, I don't care what public opinion is because 99% <laughs> of it is wrong. And nobody's even analyzing it properly. But with the straight story, I figured, oh, there's got to be some level of just 
critic again uh, uh, written criticism yes there's more than enough written criticism on david mm-hmm. lynch i'm more fascinated by contemporary criticism yeah stuff of the last like three to five years again uh, there's no shortage of people's opinions on david lynch over the last almost 50 years but when it came to the straight story there was only really one podcast i could find oh. And I listened to it, and it's one. This it's this new phenomenon when it comes to podcasts that I think is just kind of fascinating. Where you have currently working screenwriters in Hollywood talking about movies, and what I mean by currently working, I'm not talking about like some guy, like the, the the screenwriter of Death Kiss. I'm not talking about that. I'm mm-hmm. talking about like people currently working in the industry that have had like that have worked on. I don't want to say blockbusters, but like films. That if I read off their credits, you'd recognize. Sure. And they're and they're dissecting these movies, and I think that's I think that's fascinating because it gives you an insight into the uh, the current workings of Hollywood and why half of these movies don't make sense, and it's also disturbing at the same time because you're like, oh, these are the people writing the stories for hundred million dollar films, and they don't understand why these films work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, but again, it's fascinating on intellectual level, but as somebody who consumes this stuff, it's terrifying. It's like finding out like how they make Big Macs. And it's <laughs> like, oh, so the secret sauce isn't Thousand Island dressing. It's mayonnaise left in the sun for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like I, I, I like the taste of this, but I don't like how they got there. Um, but as I was listening to this podcast, and maybe if I'm depending if I'm in the mood or not, I might link to them in the show notes because I'm not going to highlight anything specific who they are. Okay. But one of the big things was like they were talking about these movies, and like one of the guys absolutely hated Eraserhead, um, and, and they were talking about the straight story, and they were t- and they had it's interesting they had a couple of like interesting observations about things but they like they would bring again like rob we were talking about this in the uh, pre-show recording is that like automatically they bring it back to donald trump and it's oh, like God. it's like it's like if you're watching the straight story and for even a split second if donald trump comes into your mind <laughs> you are you you do not understand the film i'm sorry a, i don't care. yeah yeah that's a that's a good point this is the furthest this move straight the straight story is the furthest thing from contemporary politics yeah it's yeah it's it's not even about like the masses it's about more of individuality i would say so god yeah and hey everybody out there whether you do a podcast or not let me let you in on something it's something that i think everybody should know but we've all just had our heads way too up our asses to remember it donald trump is not just a punchline you can't just make any joke and then say trump's name it doesn't make it funny but people think it does so stop it please stop it (laughs) If you have something you want to say about politics, say it. You don't just make a joke and then say, oh, Trump. <laughs> Get the fuck yeah. out of here. That's poor writing, you know? Because we grew up the same thing when people were doing it with Bush. Now we're seeing yep. it with Trump. Like, shut up. Like, say something smart or just don't talk about it. It's not funny just because you've heard other people think it's funny. Yeah, and that's, and that's pretty much what I'm trying to get at here is that there's not a lot of contemporary insightful criticism on this film okay, like like okay. the one example i could find and they do a pretty good job like i listened to the whole thing i it wasn't like some podcast where i listened to the first like 20 minutes and i'm like nope i'm like there's like there i know that's wrong never judge a book by its cover but like i can just tell where the conversation's going there's nothing insightful to be gleaned here from this sure. and no it was, it was a pretty good discussion it was but like and i will get to we'll circle i'll circle back around to the point they did when they connected it to trump because it wasn't a wrong like uh opinion it's not that it was wrong it's just that like 
you didn't need to put that there. And I think that's one of those things that clouds contemporary film criticism nowadays is that everything is so blinded by, and again, I know this is kind of like a tangent, but it's just, it was just, it was weird. It was a weird thing that took me out of their discussion because for the most part, it was a great discussion. Um, but no, to go back to the original point, there's not a lot of contemporary criticism on this. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be, it's much like, I don't think it's going to be like a wonder shows in, or the idiot box. We're really kind of like staking out our claim. I do think that what we say here will resonate more than just our normal crowd of like a half a dozen people. Right on, right on. But uh, to get back to the Rob's thing about why this, and maybe we'll save this for toward the end too. But this is, honest to God, folks, a Disney film that's not on Disney Plus. Yeah, and and I think I don't know if this is where you want to go, or maybe what you were hinting at we would do later. But you know, when we talked about things such as um, Disneyland Fun, you know, short, quick video of an older time of Disney, I get it. I get why that wouldn't be on there. Song of the South, we totally understand why that's not on there. But this. Like this, this seems like it would have been so simple for them to include, and it would have just. I remember when they released the list of stuff on Disney Plus. It was uh, like miles long, and I was scrolling through it, and I was like, I know maybe five of these, and most of them are from Zach, you know, like Pixel Perfect <laughs> and, and Country Bear is what I was looking for. But why wouldn't they put this on here, on on well, the streaming service? It seems so simple. Well, okay, I'll, there's there's two reasons why. I'm gonna first give them the the benefit of the doubt. One is that like any David Lynch film, there's like a dozen different financiers, and who knows who has the rights to this? Who okay. knows who has the rights to this? I'll give them that. Sure. But sure. at the same time, though, this is Disney. They are flushed with cash. Mm-hmm. All it is is a matter of writing a check. Exactly. If they if they wanted this, it's simply a matter of just finding out who it is, which is probably two or three phone calls, and it's like, okay, how much do you want for a movie that nobody remembers? Yeah, yeah. And and the big thing too is that like this is a movie that's never gotten its fair shake on home video. Um, I know Disney back I think in the early two thousands released it on DVD. After then, it's it's a very difficult film to get a hold of, like in an official mm-hmm. capacity. I'm pretty sure it's never gotten a. I don't think it's ever gotten a Blu-ray release, and if it has, it's 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 a bare bones one where it's like kind of just just the film. Mm-hmm. It's not like what Criterion's been doing lately with like Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, Firewalk with Me, um, it, Mulholland Drive. It's it does not get any sort of recognition. Okay. And I think that's kind of the thing we'll get at later as to whether this is a cinemodity, because I think there's multiple layers as to whether this is a cinemodity that you, it's either a yes or no on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. But no, this is really one of those films that's genuinely shocking that it's been forgotten by the masses and not even just the masses. It's been forgotten by people who kind of worship at the altar of David Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I was thinking because Whenever I talk to somebody about David Lynch, this is not anywhere near the first thing that comes up, you know? I, I also don't think that just in, in I guess, uh, his, his oeuvre, you know, this isn't something that comes up at all. Like you said, it's almost forgotten. You always hear Eraserhead, Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, and it's like, you know, th- this deserves its spot and its, uh, its place and notoriety, too. And I think that's what, you know, we're trying to do a little bit here in this episode. Yeah. Well, that's the weird thing, though. And again, I do want to save part of the. Again, it's really weird talking about David Lynch and not bring up a racer head because it is such the the bane of the existence of uh, <laughs> of everything between Rob and I. 
Um, Rob, it should be noted that Rob had like a going away birthday party uh, for his 18th birthday right before college, and he got an Eraserhead poster from me. Like that was kind of like we should mention. Yeah. This, this was a huge thing, folks. Like I know Rob and I laugh about Pixel Perfect and Avengers Endgame and kind of like all the different like shenanigans we got into with like Friday the Thirteenth, the remake, uh, uh, th- that sort of stuff. Like all that doesn't hold a candle to the seismic impact of a racer head. Um, it it yeah. really is. It, it cannot be overstated. Uh, but no, the point about like, it's so weird nowadays. Like when I track when a racer head, when we were discovering that I had to get a copy from the library. And after that, it was kind of something similar to the silent night, deadly night part two discussion into how, uh, copies of that got passed around mm-hmm. toward the end of senior year without making it explicit what happened and then after that i remember going to borders the the book the, the now defunct book chain and having to like kind of special order it because it was one of the very few places where you could still buy the official dvd because i think it was sometime in 2006 i want to say i could be wrong uh david lynch like did like a remaster of it on dvd it was the first time it had ever been i think ever officially released on home video in a way that lynch deemed fit for home or home video consumption and that was the copy i got and it's kind of been one of my i don't want to say treasured possessions but it always it <laughs> yeah. always got brought around whether it's again to college again unlike rob i don't have the uh, the massive hard drive i've always believed in physical disc copies it's just maybe i'm uh, sentimental toward those sort of things but that always got passed around and i always used to mention it to people like it was kind of one of those things where if anybody kind of like you're, i used to joke in college um if you sat next to me long enough you'd hear two stories you'd hear zach's freshman year roommate story i.e. sal and the second one was Eraserhead. like that okay. those are all those are my two kind of like uh, uh party stories i would tell if you ever got sat me down long enough you'd hear both of those stories eventually um what about the didn't you live with like a, a army vet that smoked a bunch of weed or am i misremembering that yeah that was that they didn't hear that story oh I, okay, I, okay they, I gotcha. it was it's funny one the, probably the only time i've ever been able to do a late night movie with someone was later that that was junior year that was the second gotcha. semester the the ex marine with PTSD and he was a great guy again he had problems but he was he was a lovely man and uh, but it was the second semester where I had the two uh, hoo ha's well technically three ha's that lived with me <laughs> if you knew who they were folks you would trust me that was a rather apt description okay just so I don't get in trouble I have to explain this to people I used to call them that to their face and they thought it was funny that's the thing about it. they they didn't get offended <laughs> by that because they knew they were they they were good okay you know I'm gonna rephrase that they were goofs and they were they were they were goofy guys and they knew that because at one point i don't think i've ever told rob the story was that it was the end of april of 2013 i always did my grocery shopping on friday afternoons and i come back into my apartment with like a bag of groceries and in my living room there was like 50 people and these two guys were planning out the May Day protest Oh my god! And I'm not joking. Imagine fitting That's 50 insane. people into a college apartment, like like living room, and I'm like, "What the hell is this?" And I'm like, "What is going on?" And the fun thing was, like, the next day was May 1st, or no, maybe it was. I don't know. Whatever day it was, whatever sure. the May Day happened, protest. And like, I remember we, like, everybody got. I remember at one point, it was one of those weird moments in colleges where like everybody got the email at once, so everybody's phone in the library went off at once with the email mm-hmm. chime, and it's like something, something May Day protest email. And someone's like, "Yeah, did you see all those kids outside like the executive like dean's building?" And it's like, "Yeah." And I'm like, "Yeah, they planned that in my in my living room the other night." 
Everyone kind of looked at me and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, like legit, this entire thing was planned out in my living room. Like everything that happened today, I knew what was going on like a minute by minute basis because I had it. <laughs> I was listening to all of it. Um, again, that's neither here nor there. But they were the, the goofs. They were the ones who I showed a racer head to. And one of the guys, he, well, he wasn't intellectual, so he didn't really care. But the other guy loved it. And I remember showing to him like 10 o'clock at night on the projector. And nice. he was he was he's probably the only person except for Rob. That I'd ever shown the movie to that genuinely got it. I'm like on all the layers. And it was. It was the only time that I'd ever I've ever done a late night movie with somebody that wasn't indoctrinated with this sort of thing sure. like Rob was. Sure. And it was. It was it was it was a lightning experience though, but it was the only time. But yes, that was I don't know where I was going with this. But that was the um that was the only time was a racer head. But no gang okay, now I remember where I was going with this. Um the point being with a racer head was in order to track down a copy of a racer head, you really had to know where to look for it. And I'm not talking about torrents or illicit means. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about that. If you want a copy of a racer head, you had to you had to get lucky and know where to go for it. The problem now, and I now I know this makes me sound like a royal jerk, and this goes for all of David Lynch's canon, and maybe we'll get into more of this when we d- delve into further Lynch films, um, was that if you wanted any Lynch film, you had to go looking for it. I remember when Sal found Inland Empire and FYE. It was kind of this amazing experience, and to this day, I'm furious. And we'll get into that if we ever talk about Inland Empire. Um, when it, 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 we talk about that fantastic uh, film, oh when? God, no, no, the best, no. the best film ever put to digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, I, I, I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to talk about that film, folks. I don't think that might be another uh, Aristocats where at this point I just have to watch all the Death Wish movies in a row to survive. Uh, you put Empire. a racer head on in the middle of Inland Empire. <laughs> <laughs> if only that would help. Um, but no, the thing about nowadays with a lot of Lynch's films is that they're, they are so accessible. Like I said, with Criterion, like Fire yeah. Walk With Me is available. Uh, Mulholland Drive, Blue Velvet, Eraserhead, they're all available. And if they're not available, like again, every Barnes & Noble has all these films readily available. And the thing too is that it used to be Criterion through Hulu. I think Criterion now has its own streaming service. All this stuff is readily accessible. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's like the the – a Razorhead's always going to be the Grand Poobah or Cinemades, but at the same time, though, it's too accessible. Sure. And I, and I think that there's a part of that that, again, makes me sound like a jerk by saying that, like, oh, something should be inaccessible to make it feel special. But for me, anyway, I feel the straight story has kind of replaced Eraserhead for me in the guise of what I recommend. Like when I talk to people about weird Mm. movies, and obviously when it comes to hosting a a podcast that's called Cinemodities, (laughs) Cinematic Oddies, that that conversation comes up a lot. Um, But I've seen myself in the last couple years, when I sell people David Lynch, the first thing now that comes up is Twin Peaks. Yep. And now I tell people about David Lynch, I say the straight story. I don't say the the accessible titles. Okay. And and the and stop my stop me from rambling on, Rob, because Rob knows part of the story. But my my quasi not girlfriend Mackenzie, I remember she was like, Oh, I've watched all the original Twin Peaks, not the return. And She's like, like, I've seen Blue Velvet. I've seen, like, and she hadn't seen Eraserhead. And she's like, what should I watch next from David Lynch? And I'm like, you should watch The Straight Story. And she's like, oh, I've never heard of that. And she watched it, and we didn't really talk about it, but her main thing was like, oh, I was in tears by the end. 
And I think that's the big thing with the straight story now is that as weird as it may sound, and maybe it in the last God ten years since Rob and I got into a racer head, there also has been a certain like reforming of David Lynch's public persona to people. Mm-hmm. Because when Rob and I were like getting into a racer head in 2010, the last thing Lynch that he'd done really meaningful was Inland Empire. And this was it was kind of like this weird ass thing that nobody knew what to make of. But since then, David Lynch has kind of become this weird sort of like this is probably not the right word, but like a lesser extent of ubiquitous, mm-hmm. where like he is a name that people recognize now within our generation. Whereas 10 years ago when we were in high school, if you went up to one of our stupid quote unquote peers and said, Hey, you ever heard of David Lynch? 99% of the people we knew are going to be like, what? Who's that? Yeah. Now, if you went up to people are our same like group of, well, not friends, but the people that we were associated with in high school and said, do you know David Lynch? They'd be like, Oh yeah, I know him. Twin peaks, blue velvet. And they'd probably, some of them would even have a very faint understanding of a racer head. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my point is that the straight story is this weird sort of like, people don't look at David Lynch as a weirdo anymore. They kind of see him as this like transcendental meditation guru that yeah. just has a really unique eye for weird stuff. He's yeah. not seen as this like man that sits in the shadows anymore. He's kind of like, like your, like your grandpa that likes weird things, but knows how to relate to you. And the straight story I think is overlooked because it isn't a blatantly weird movie. Yeah, yeah, like I was saying before, there's no on-the-surface surrealism like his other stuff. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the point of the straight story and that why it's not on Disney+, Plus is that huh? Disney Disney doesn't want to be associated with him in any way. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, too, I think they're probably afraid that, like, if you click on the straight story, Lord knows what else would be recommended to you because of it. It's like, as weird as it may sound, I think yeah. this is my intent, too. Um, I'd say... Any David Lynch film is a gateway drug to all of his other films. Definitely. Um, I don't think you can just watch one David Lynch thing and be like, I'm done. Next. <laughs> um, I don't think that that's ever happened before. And I, I think that's another thing, too. I think they, they don't want to be associated with him in any sense. I think okay. it's Disney. Um, even if I, I wouldn't be surprised if this has shown up on streaming services before, whether it be Hulu, which is part disney amazon uh netflix i wouldn't be surprised if it showed up there over the last 10 years but it's the idea that it's it's like if people watch david lynch now because they want that visceral weird crap they want to get high off these films and the straight story is not a film you get high off of it's a sobering film exactly yeah that's that's an interesting point you bring up there at the end where um you know David Lynch, I would agree with you completely, has become somewhat, you know, ubiquitous. Like people, people know him where they used to never know him. And I think that when you have people that aren't maybe really familiar with uh, a lot of his films and short films and maybe even Twin Peaks, um, they think of it and it's like, oh yeah, it's like he's got some weird shit, you know? It's like, oh, that's something you could you could take acid and watch. And it's like not really it's like kind of that's what he does but there's a lot more sentimentality going on in a lot of it and i think the straight story exemplifies that perfectly where david lynch isn't just this surrealist you know wacky off the wall type of crazy stuff storyteller he can tell a grounded story too and give it his own twist that makes it relatable and and emotional for sure Yeah, because in that podcast I was referencing earlier, they were talking about this. And this is the kind of thing that really, it's, this is the part that genuinely scared me when it came to the fact that, oh, these are like, when we talk about things like, oh, 
this person is writing the Terminator Dark Fate movie, or this is the screenwriter behind Doctor Sleep. And you're like, oh, you look at this person's credits and like, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, why would this person be doing this job? And like these guys were doing the thing they were complaining and they weren't complaining. They were, they had reverence for this film, but they were talking about it in the sense of, I guess, like what Rob and I do when it comes to like late night movie was that like, oh, I can't recommend this movie because it's too normal. If this wasn't directed by David Lynch, this movie has no purpose. What? And, and, and yes, exactly. Like this movie's too normal. Um, it doesn't fit into the canon. It's, it's too simple. There's, there's nothing unique about it except for the fact that how odd it is within the canon of David Lynch films. And that's the kind of the part that I don't want to say terrified me, but it was, oh, these guys fundamentally don't understand David Lynch. They don't understand movies. They don't understand what makes things resonate. And it's like, oh, yeah, these are the same people that will be given the the the, the task of writing a hundred million dollar film, and then yeah. when it bombs, not be able to. F- and and the, the executives like, huh? I wonder why this didn't click. It must have been the marketing. Yeah. And it's like, no. It's like you have people writing movies that don't understand why movies work. And like I've always said, like that's the most terrifying thing, and especially in Hollywood nowadays, is that they 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 va- what's the word? Um, they worship everything but value nothing. And that's that's kind of what the straight story is. And I think that was the most enlightening aspect of this. And maybe Rob and I are the weird ones here. Maybe we're the oddities, and that maybe we're looking at this the wrong way, or we're in the minority when it comes to uh, uh, intellectual criticism on the straight story. But that's the things. I think that's why. And going back to what I said earlier, without repeating myself, is that this? Yes, this is an oddity within David Lynch's canon, in the sense of just like in a. Oh god, on a superficial level, it's a Disney release. It's G-rated. It yeah. doesn't feature any of Lynch's uh superficial trademarks like just the, the nightmarish imagery. But at the same time though, this is wholly a David Lynch film. Like you watch this and there's nobody else on earth that could have made this film. I in, completely in the incarnation agree. exists. Exactly. And that was a that was a huge thing, you know, when I was watching this uh for this recording where it's like, you know, once again, none of that surrealism is on the surface but every scene is dripping every line of dialogue every scene the way it's shot the way it plays out it's dripping with david lynch and you know one of my notes is only david lynch could make me care about a shop clerk selling off his favorite grabber only (laughs) david lynch could do that and make me care about it right the grabber Oh, geez, Alvin. That's my grabber, Alvin. Well? Uh, oh, geez, Alvin. I mean, I, I do have two of them. I could, oh, I'd think $5 would be about right. That's a darn good grabber, Alvin. I, I... Well? They're hard to come by, Alvin. It's going to take me two months to get another one on order. Uh, I love it. (laughs) That's the thing. Again, I'll let maybe Rob do his uh, synopsis because he'll be much briefer with it than I ever could be. But there is. This film is comprised of small moments. But they're they're greater than the sum of their parts. And I think that's what some people just get caught up in just the literal plot of this film of, oh, it's an old man that visits his brother while taking a lawnmower to do it 
and a lot of people would be that be like, oh, and the easiest comparison or the lowest hanging fruit comparison is something like the part of Forrest Gump where he just starts jogging across America and he encounters sure. all these weird things like, uh, oh God, doesn't he help create the smiley face T-shirt or something because of he wipes his like the guy like wipes his or no Forrest wipes his face on the yeah. guy's shirt. It's, the that's why tie dye, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it happens. He invents that, mm-hmm. and I yep. was just like, oh god. <laughs> and that's why I think a lot of people see this movie as like from a distance. It's like, oh, this is David Lynch's just every man film, and maybe that's why he did this was in the way to prove that he wasn't typecast into the into the box of look at all the weird crap I can do, mm-hmm. which is obviously his his hallmark is look at all the weird crap I can do. Yeah. But I think a lot of people just kind of misdiagnose this film. It's just him trying to do something different. And it's kind of like what happened, again, the example I thought of while watching it was kind of like what George Carlin did back like in the, uh, I think, late 80s, early 90s when he was Mr. Conductor on Shining Time Station. Like Carlin did that to prove that he could, he could be more than just a yeah. potty mouth comedian. He was, he was more than that. And I, and a lot of people just kind of take the straight stories that it's David Lynch proving he can do more than that. And I think most of those people are willing to, I don't think any of those people say this is a bad film. I think this is one of the very few films you could say, I, I, well, maybe not everybody can say, but I know I can say is that this is a genuinely perfect film. I would rank this up there with like a 2001 or something like that, where there's not a greater version of this story that could ever possibly exist. I would agree. I would agree completely. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing, though. And I guess I'll let Rob respond to that, and then maybe afterwards he'll give a synopsis to our audience to what this film is actually about instead of just uh, 40 minutes of philosophical rambling. <laughs> I I wish I, I know or knew, no. I wish I had the knowledge of David Lynch in a, in a greater degree than I do, but I really don't. I only really have it around specific movies, not really how they connect. So I don't know if that's the case where he was trying to break out of his, um, you know, not get typecast to some certain extent. Uh, and break out into something like this, a G-rated Disney movie. Uh, so I'm not sure there, but I kind of, if if that was the case, I would love it. I think if that's what he was going for, he, he hit home run. This is truly, you know, nothing like anything else he's ever done, but it has, like we said, it's dripping with his uh, touches all over it. But I, I don't know. I The other part of me while I was watching this again was kind of thinking like, well, th- this is kind of like, a story that gives David Lynch the ability to make everything behind the scenes. Like, I think it does have a lot of the same themes and stuff that David Lynch likes to hit on a lot. But like you said, it's not there in that striking visceral imagery. It's all hidden in these different tales and, and you know, the people he meets along the way. Like, honestly, to me, uh, when I was watching this uh, again for this recording, it's been forever since I had seen the straight story. uh, This is the depressing version of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Because Pee-wee's Big Adventure, of course, Tim Burton's you know comedy film almost, that is Pee-wee has to go across country to find his bike. And it's not about him looking for the bike. It's about all the people he meets along the way and how that reflects on his story and how he reflects on their story. And that's what this is. And I think that's just a, a perfect kind of David Lynch concept. You know, I'm thinking of all these other movies where, yes, yeah, something weird might have been going on. But like Kyle MacLachlan in Blue Velvet, he needs to go and find out who this ear belongs to because that's how he feels he's going to grow. And it's not really about his growth. It's about how he encounters all of this kind of seedy underbelly of the world. So I'm kind of torn because while this is definitely unlike the rest of David Lynch's filmography, it still weirdly fits into me. Like 
it doesn't look the same, but when you when you kind of you know try and fit that puzzle piece in, it just slides right in. I don't know. Did you get a kind of sense of that too? Yeah, no. It's, it's interesting you bring up the Kyle McLaughlin uh, Blue Velvet comparison because as I was watching this, I don't. I think it's like uh, unmistakable that both how this begins, the straight story, and Blue Velvet are almost identical. Oh, yeah. but they're almost two halves of the same coin. Where you both had this kind of like they're both shot very similarly to the fact that you have like two people mm-hmm. outside like in sunny weather enjoying just the lovely outdoor outdoorsiness nature. I of was it all. I was waiting for the bugs at the beginning when I rewatched this. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's kind of like I was watching this. I haven't watched Blue Velvet in, in years, and I was like, oh wow, this really is kind of like the again if if Blue Velvet is the seedy underbelly of America, this mm-hmm. is the there's hope for us all. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they, they are kind of like blue velvet is under the surface while this is above the surface. Two sides of, different, of the same coin. You're absolutely right. Well, that's maybe not exactly like that. I do think it's the idea that like a big theme of David Lynch's and even uh, Twin Peaks The Return kind of throws a lot of this up in the air because that, that's trying to do so many things at once. It's hard to pull out specific themes from that. Mm-hmm. But it's I think the one of prior to the return, one of Lynch's biggest hallmarks has always been like kind of like the like the seedy underbelly of America. Yep. Whether that be things like Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Wild at Heart, um obviously Elephant Man doesn't really fit into there, Dune doesn't fit into there. Um Speaking of which, I'm not sure, a slight tangent because we're on David Lynch. I'm not sure of how much of South Park Rob watches, but on the latest episode, they were doing something South Parky, and there's tons of David Lynch Dune references. Ooh, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it's, I think I've, I've only seen like one through 21 of South Park seasons. I don't okay. think I'm a few seasons behind. Yes, they do. They do some fun. Okay, it's it's goofy, and I find it so odd they're referencing Lynch's Dune <laughs> nice. in, in contemporary <laughs> South Park. But whatever, who am I to question it? Um, but no, I, that's always been the theme of Lynch's: is the CD underbelly of it all. Mm-hmm. And this is the oh, the antithesis to all of that. Being like, there are still good people out there. There are people just because we don't focus on them, like. I don't want to say that uh, Alvin Strait is the, oh God, kind of like what, the the White Lodge reflection of Dennis Hopper's Frank. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> sure, sure. But it's the idea that you, you have two, even though Frank's not supposed to be an elderly man the same way that uh, Alvin is. It's the idea that like they are opposites. One is pure evil, while the other one might, it's, maybe one's pure evil and the other one's a very realistic incarnation of a person obviously frank is very cartoonish in some aspects yeah yeah embellished Uh, for sure yeah yes embellished being the right word and uh no but i do think this is meant to be almost like a response to blue velvet it's kind of like like lynch realizing that oh i've painted too dark of a picture of what america is and so now i have to pull pull the center a little bit more toward the light yeah, that's how, that's, that's how that's I interpreted this this time. That's a good point, because I feel like there's always been the touches of that in his other films. Like, there is some silver lining, as faint as it might be, and depressing as it may seem, like the lady in the radiator at the end of a Razorhead, or, you know, say, Isabella Rossellini in, in Blue Velvet. Um, this is kind of, I could see that more where this is kind of him just diving headfirst into his, his belief on that silver lining. And... I think with that, that's an interesting point you bring up because while there is a lot of, you know, uh, faith in humanity restored ideas in this movie, it's not just that. He does face a challenge. He does have this journey that he has to, you know, work through obstacles to get to, but there's just more happiness imbued in it. So it's kind of like, you know, it's 
yeah, it's almost like tipping the scales of usual David Lynch, where everything seems terrible, but there's that little glimmer of hope that might come out, uh, subjective hope. And then this is kind of like, oh, you know, I have this huge obstacle. Alvin Strait has this huge obstacle to overcome, but he always faces it with optimism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I dig it. I dig it. This, this this whole thing now it's making me appreciate this movie even more. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing with this is that like this is really I, I think uh, maybe it's a nonconformist in May is anytime something becomes too popular, I kind of feel like it's been ruined mm-hmm. uh, because it's just like and like with anything, it's not that like when a lot of people like something, it bothers me. That's not the issue. It's when um people just misunderstand it. And I think that's what makes sure. me not that I'm saying that like my opinion's the correct one, but the kind like I said with the podcast I referenced earlier, to say that this film is is not worth looking at because it's too normal, um, I, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um yeah. I, I, I I get that in the sense of a, like I don't think any movie, and I think that's one of the things that maybe come in the coming weeks, maybe next year. We're probably going to be kind of a realigning the uh, the focus of cinematis in that everything can be a cinematis un- under the right lens. <laughs> and I think just because something looks normal on the surface doesn't mean it's not bizarre. Like like we've kind of talked about like Avengers Endgame. I yeah, guess the highest yeah. grossing film of all time. Yet that film is 100% a cinematis because it's the idea you could do all these weird, goofy-ass things with it. Yet somehow in an age where everybody has their own unique interest, it's the only thing that can literally be this ubiquitous thing in the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what the, that kind of bothers me with the straight stories that so many people, because again, 10 years ago, uh, you could probably fit all the David Lynch acolytes in a phone booth that were under the age of 18. Like we were yeah. nowadays. I don't think there's any shortage of David Lynch acolytes that are under the age of 21. Yep. And it's even in speaking of, uh, I know Rob watches Rick and Morty in the latest Rick and Morty episode. Um, I think Rick makes a comment. I know Rob will insert the clip where he makes some remark, Rick. He's like, uh, instead of falling, instead of writing the program for uh, so-and-so robot, as I fell asleep through two heist films, I wrote his programming as I fell asleep through the three David Lynch films. I had to watch that My friends told me that were great. And I know I butchered that and I paraphrased a lot. That's why I picked this crew at random and why all of us will be taking our orders from Randotron. Let's get ready to not rumble. Bet you didn't see that coming. Instead of two heist movies I slept through, Randotron's algorithm is derived from the plots of three David Lynch movies I pretended to like to make my friends shut up. But it's the idea that now Lynch is not this kind of weird, like oddity in the corner anymore he is this thing that is easily accessible and a lot of people consume Mm -hmm. now to be different they consume lynch to be different like everybody else which is if you know is is (laughs) it's a contradiction i want to be different just like everybody else Mm -hmm. and the straight story because of just the fact that it's so non-Lynch and that it's so inaccessible is maybe one of the last pure pieces of Lynch we have nowadays that's not like one of his short films or one of his music videos or his like experimental music. It is yeah. one of the very few pieces of Lynch on a large scale that uh, really is something that people ignore for the most part. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's an absolutely good point. And, and it is very different, you know, of the other things that even though we've been talking about how David Lynch has become this this known figure, uh, there is stuff that I, I still talk to people about, and they're like, never heard of it. You know, like very few people I've ever encountered that know David Lynch know about rabbits. 
and rabbits mm. is still like one of the greatest things ever to me. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, Industrial Symphony Number no. One, the um, the uh, the visual album type of thing that he did with um, Julie Cruz and Angelo Badalamenti. You know, nobody knows about that, even though it's on YouTube. And the Duran Duran concert film he did. I'm, I don't even think yep. anybody cares about Duran Duran anymore, and they're not going to care about a David Lynch concert film from them type of thing. It's it really is kind of this strange balance where everybody knows him. But then he's only known for these certain things and kind of gets put into a box for it. Yep. That's, and people that's aren't the, willing to branch out into stuff like this, the straight story, because, like you said, they think it's too normal. And that's not what they're expecting. And it's like, no, that's that's ass backwards. If if somebody like Salvador Dali decides to write, you know, like a very cut and dry kid story, you're going to check it out to see what he's going to do. It's not that, oh, this weird person's doing something normal. Your brain should go, Wow what is this normal to this weird person going to be? That's infinitely more interesting than just, you know, uh, like a Lost Highway type of thing. I love Lost Highway, don't get me wrong, but just taking a step back and looking at the creator and the project, there's some interest in that, you know? When they branch out and do weird things, shouldn't that attract more attention? Clearly not, because people are, like I said, ass backwards, but that's how I think about it. Well, that's the thing we kind of, okay, I want to get into a slight tangent about Lost Highway, but I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to it. But I think the thing that's happening with Lynch now is the very similar thing that's just like happening with everything in today's culture is that people, it's just like, oh, I want to like, like David Lynch is on like a BuzzFeed listicle. I'm going to binge all of David Lynch and then I'm going to binge all of David Fincher. And then I'm going to, and I think that's the thing is that like, Again, when Rob and I sought out Eraserhead in 2010, we had to go, again, go look for it. And I know I've said this now how many times. But nowadays, someone just throws that on at like 9 o'clock one night and falls asleep halfway through it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is that like when we – and I think this is kind of the thing that why I hate streaming services so much. It's the idea that like nothing like, – you have so many options and – Everything is so readily available. Nothing feels precious anymore. Exactly. Like when I was able to track down a copy of Eraserhead through Borders because nobody else had it available. Because at that point, who else would have stocked something like that? Like Best Buy ain't stocking copies of Eraserhead in the 2000s, folks. <laughs> um, but now that somebody just is sitting in front of their laptop and say, oh, I've heard about this Eraserhead thing. Like one of my friends in my timeline or Twitter feed was talking about it. And it's like, okay, like, like how we talked about, uh, uh, the guy with the t-shirt from high school. I know, um, on red letter media and even though God, again, red letter media being another one of those things, I know Jay from letter media. I know, like, I, I think one of their Christmas episodes, he's wearing like a, uh, lady in the radiator Christmas sweater. Ooh. It, it, it's kind of the, well, that's the problem though, is that like, no one should ever own a piece of a racer head apparel. Like it's not designed to be worn as a T-shirt. Like yeah, a razor yeah. head, and, and again, I don't think I, I think it's fair to say like any piece of um, David Lynch works. None of it was designed to be commercialized. It's kind of like the thing I've just seen recently. Like the toy company NECA is making they live action figures, and I'm like. If you like the movie that, yeah, exactly. That's the correct response to that. That is the correct <laughs> response to that. And I'm like, if you like any, like if you like even a morsel of John Carpenter's They Live, you should not be buying any merchandise from it. <laughs> to buy They Live merchandise, other than maybe the poster, 
is yeah, a complete yeah. misunderstanding of why you let, why the movie exists. Like it's funny, I saw somebody, I think it was Instagram. Somebody made like a Christmas tree topper of an angel, but it had the they live face. And I'm like, oh my god, that's so cool. I'm like, where can I buy one? And then it dawned on me. To buy one is to live. You're basically bringing the movie to fruition. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like if like if you want to make one, that's great. Like if you want to go like I don't know, like get whatever like materials to actually like sculpt that, that's great. Yeah, but make, to, a little, like, make a little art project for yourself. Sure. Exactly, very DIY. But to actually just buy one, like, no, you are missing the whole point of the movie. <laughs> and I think that's the weird thing. And again, with David Lynch and stuff, is that like he's become. And it's, again, it's, it sounds weird to say this. Like his ubiquitousness is just like it's. I don't want to say devaluing him because I don't think anything can ever devalue the films themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that like it's poisoning the discourse. The ubiquitousness yeah. of Lynch is poisoning the discourse about his works, and then you get opinions like the straight story shouldn't be watched because it's too normal. Yeah, I think I'm getting the sense this is kind of coming back to what we've been saying, I think, for a few weeks now on this series that, you know, we've been saying people want what's familiar, what's safe. That's what they go to. And then it, it gets to things where, you know, that's not everybody. Sure, that, that's the masses. I think we've as we discussed it, you know, that's what makes money. But then when you have deviations from that, where people want to say, oh, I don't want to do what's safe. I want to do something that's out there and weird. Then when they look into what is out there and weird, that's where they find the, the David Lynch, the ubiquitousness of it. You know, maybe their friends that are really into Marvel stuff are like, oh, yeah, that eraser head, that was weird. Then they didn't even watch the whole thing, you know, or maybe someone else told them about it. And so I agree with you that him being so well known in that kind of little, you know, uh, bubble of, of weirdness or surrealism, there people just go to it and they're like, oh, yeah, that was weird. And that almost like kind of smooths it out in the grand scheme of things. And maybe that's just, you know, uh, a relic of or an artifact of just time passing because, you know, Eraserhead did come out in 77. It's been around forever, longer than we have. And but I think I'm with you. Maybe that's just it being so well known is detracting from, you know, what those movies mean to these people and should mean to these people. Well, it's interesting. That's an interesting concept. And I think I chose my words very carefully in that. I don't think. They're devaluing the films because the films will always stay again. Eraserhead will always stand the test of time because there'll never be anything like that film. Sure, um, it, it's truly inimitable. Like you, you again. I don't care how many monkeys you put in front of typewriters or in front of cameras. Yeah, nobody yeah. ever making another Eraserhead. That's that's a one and done. Uh, but the thing is that it's kind of like how I'm always thinking about Star Wars, and that like. A lot of times I'll be watching or I'll be thinking about Star Wars and the public opinion discourse like, infuriates me. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, again, a lot of people, and again, this is I, I know this sounds really narcissistic, but a lot of people just not understanding what Star Wars is about. A lot of people just projecting what they think about their opinions onto the films. And it's like, that's fine. Like, if you want to have an opinion about someone, no one's telling you you can't do that. I'm sorry, not someone, something. Uh, that's there's nothing wrong with that. It's the idea that like then you you can't claim that was the artist's intent. Like if I'm in the mood for I don't know pudding, and then I see a white X-wing pilot helmet, I can't say oh Lucas's intent was thinking of pudding that day, and that's what it was. Oh sure. white pudding, vanilla pudding. No, just because you think about something in the moment doesn't mean that was the intent. And 
and that's what happens with Star Wars with me. It's like, I'll go back and watch the films. And in a vacuum, every single one of those films, whether it be the originals, the prequels, the, the Disney era, the films in a vacuum all hold up. Even the ones that I'm not thrilled about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that's happening with a lot of media nowadays. Is that the discourse from the normies, the filthy casuals, us included, to a lesser extent... Is poisoning the discourse And that's always one of my biggest If anybody listens to the Star Wars podcast You know what I'm getting at here Is that I'm I'm always concerned about perception yeah. and narratives. Like like we've said before, when it came to Doctor Sleep, we live in the the era of narratives. And the problem is that narratives are shaping. Like narratives are no longer reflecting the 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 media. They are are weirdly contorting the media mm-hmm. and that's and by media i mean the the films the, the like the canon of whether it be a director or just the specific films not media as in like uh websites or blogs or things like that yeah, and i think yeah. that's always whether it be the star wars podcast or whether it be on here on cinemates it's that that's why i'm always afraid of things like the the guys in the podcast saying you shouldn't be watching this is that that discourse is poisoning people's perception of things because all people don't want to watch things and form their own opinion on them they want to consume an opinion and move on so if they're at a party with friends and somebody mentions something they can on a split second say oh yeah straight story i've heard of that it's not very good it's not very lynch and they move on oh my and they, i i get what you're saying yeah i'm i'm just imagining you know someone at a some party somewhere even though this probably doesn't exist you know, they'd never seen the straight story, but they were like, I watched the Cinema Sins video on that, and I can tell you so many things that are wrong with that movie. And it's like, you didn't watch the movie, though. So why does your opinion yep. matter when you're regurgitating something else somebody yep. said, especially something like a YouTuber who is just basting in their own flaws? Yep. Yep. So it does, yeah. But you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, I get it. I mean, I see it in, you know, uh, friends, students, younger people I'm, I'm uh, friends with and hang out with, they don't want to sit down and watch something 90 minutes straight, unmitigated. They need to get that, you know, that 10-minute YouTube video describing what somebody thought about it first. And it's like they they can't even watch something and let an opinion form. It's like they need to lay groundwork before they can think about something. Whatever just happened to, you know, just you get thrown something and you think about it and you you form an opinion. Maybe it doesn't come immediately. Maybe you have to think about it for a while. But what's with all this foundational building of other people's ideas? And, uh, hey, you know, if you if you listen to our podcast before you watch the movies, that's fine. You're exempt from this as long as you don't take our opinions. <laughs> if you like our discussions, anybody's discussion, but don't take our opinions as foundation. Like, don't not watch The Dark Crystal because I was afraid by it, scared by it, and we didn't like it. Still check it out for yourself. It's going to be horrifying and boring. <laughs> That's our opinion, but you sh- that shouldn't turn anybody away from watching it if yep. they want to watch it and form their own opinion. Yep, and that's kind of the thing I've always even said on the Star Wars podcast. It's like, don't don't listen to a word I say. Never mm-hmm. take my opinion wholesale. Never. What, I want you to factor it into with your opinion, but you gotta, you got to reconcile all of them. Exactly. Yep, yep. you gotta, you got to take all the information in, you know, understand, make a decision, all that stuff. It's a novel concept, right? How how brains and thought processes work. <laughs> I, I, that's that's the problem, though, Rob. Is that like you look at a lot of people, and it's like 
it's not hard to extrapolate where things go from here. Like we have an entire generation that just does not want to think about anything. Mm-hmm. All they all they care about is their hedonistic pursuits. And I don't even mean that like in a carnal way. I just mean that like they just want to again hedonistic in that they just want to be the master of their of their own little world, and they don't care what gets them there. It doesn't matter. Like oh, someone's gonna say something contrary to me. And if somebody does say something contrary to me, and let's just say they there's an, like they're in a conversation, like we met this hypothetical like uh, a party conversation, and let's say you and I, you or I are in this conversation, and all they know is the cinema sense perspective of it. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen is that someone like that, and even though like if they are going to have the cinema sense perspective, I'd rather have them say that or push back against what I'm saying. The problem with those people is that they're not just going to sit there. Take what Cinemason said and what we say and reconcile the two. They're just going to take whatever opinion is currently the alpha exactly. and just uh, and just immediately adapt that as their opinion. And that's the scary part. It's again going back to they live. It is this quasi just like assimilation of just oh god. Uh, 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 taking anybody's opinion at face value. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, I believe this one thing that was black. Then the next thing is white. Therefore, I'm going to come out with some sort of gray area opinion. It's like, nope, I'm going to take the next thing next because that's just the the loudest opinion I have in front of me now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the weird thing about people these days. It's not even people. It's our generation and younger. That's kind of the thing. It's, it's the goddamn millennials and younger. Just like, they don't care what it is. Whoever's the loudest opinion I'm going to glom onto it. Yeah, exactly. And I, it's come up before. It'll it'll keep coming up forever and ever. But uh, R. Kelly is the, the example that will always be bad. So not R. Kelly, but when uh, the lead singer of the band Brand New, when he got uh, in trouble um, or accused of being mean to somebody on the internet, you know, I had friends that were like, oh, I, we, I don't want to listen to Brand New anymore. And I'm like, what? And they were like, I, we can't do it. I was like, we can't do it. You know, he was he was a sexual deviant on the internet to this young girl, blah, blah, blah. The whole story, you can look into it. It's, it's all over the lead singer brand new and what he did to this girl on the internet. And sure, he might be a total dick. He might be a sexist motherfucker that I would hate in real life. But I still have always steadfastly stood by my stance of, I want to separate the art from the artist. But to get back to Zach's point, is that the people who were telling me that they can't listen and I shouldn't listen to brand new anymore... We're saying this when that story broke. Months have gone by since that story broke. Probably years, hell. I think that was the nail in the coffin for Brand New because they were already on their way out. Now, they don't seem to even remember that. All of these people that said they didn't want to listen to Brand New, they don't care. They'll listen to it. They'll go back and we'll listen to that album like it was before any of those stories were broken. And to me, that that's exactly what you're getting at, Zach. And I, I even, I've lived it. I've seen it happen over the span of 12 months where people just parrot the highly you know volatile or highly publicized opinion that's out there on the the headlines and then once it dies down in the media and they stop hearing about it it's like they never even had that opinion and that bothers the hell out of me because you're exactly right they're parroting what's out what's loudest and they're not actually thinking about these things yep and that's the uh again that's the much like we said in dr sleep we live in the age of narratives doesn't matter mm-hmm. if it's right or wrong. Whatever's the loudest and most ubiquitous will always win. I guess it's, again, it's this weird sort of evolution of uh, the winner writes the history books, except it's just the loudest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Ah, dear. All right. After an hour of uh, philosophy, <laughs> The Straight Story, uh, a film that came out in 1999, starring uh, Richard Farnsworth, Sissy Spacek, and that's pretty much it. Like on a major, what Everett McGill? I think that's the other really only oh, other yeah. major name in the far. I love in, that. Yeah, <laughs> and the other uh, in the non Chris Farley brothers, the surviving mm-hmm. Farley brothers. And uh, other than that, that's kind of your cast of Harry characters. Dean Stanton for wow. two, two seconds. <laughs> two seconds of Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> Love me some Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, the thing is again, not to bring this back to like Avengers and stuff, but like I know as much as I complain about like Marvel and stuff, Harry Dean Stanton was in the goddamn first Avengers movie. Was he really? Mark Ruffalo, like he falls out of the the the, the helicopter. Uh, aircraft carrier and Harry Dean Stanton's there and it's like I thought you were a space alien for a second there buddy oh, and wow. it's like why, why are you nude you fell out of the sky <sighs> did I hurt anybody there's nobody around here to get hurt. You did scare the hell out of some pigeons, though. Lucky. Or just good aim. You were awake when you fell. You saw? The whole thing. Right through the ceiling. Big and green and buck-ass nude. Yeah. Didn't think those would fit you until you shrunk down to a regular-sized fella. Thank you. You're an alien? What? From outer space, an alien. No. Well then, son, you've got a condition. And that's the sort of, like, character that doesn't... I don't mean character as in um, a specific, like, character. Probably Harry Dean Stanton has a specific name in that. I mean, just like kind of like the flavor in those films that doesn't exist anymore. Sure, like, you, don't, sure. you don't have, and that's kind of like the brilliance of Joss Whedon, even though he's he's a mess of a person as well. Uh, the idea of like having a brief moment in a 200 and something million dollar comic book movie of Mark Ruffalo naked in a pile of rubble and oh, like a yeah. hundred year old Harry Dean Stanton being there like, are you a space alien? Why are you falling at him? Like, why are you falling through my roof? And it's one brief moment. Harry Dean Stanton doesn't even, I think he just stands there. He doesn't do anything really. And that's great. Like, that's one of those moments that like, you look at that moment and you juxtapose that to Avengers Endgame, where we have like 15 minutes of giant man punching a space slug and Brie Larson uh, pun- or headbutting Thanos. And you're like, how did we get here, man? Like, how does the same company in a span of seven years go from Harry Dean Stanton throwing Mark Ruffalo a pile of clothes to a talking raccoon talking about just stuff? It has no meaning. Yeah, yeah. There's Jeez. more meaning in that brief exchange between Mark Ruffalo and Harry Dean Stanton than Infinity War and Endgame, a combined box office take of almost $5 billion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In that, but doesn't have one moment like that. That gives it some level of grounding. And you have to know that when Joss Whedon had wrote that moment, and he probably had Harry Dean Stanton in mind when he wrote it, was probably trading on some of the cachet that something like the straight story and not just that, but things like Harry Dean stands, just persona and films bring to the table in the moment. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know what we should do, Rob? I want to do it. We'll do it right now when we're editing this. I'm going to take the Harry Dean Stanton, Mark Ruffalo moment from the Avengers and put in the Captain America picking up Thor's hammer audience <laughs> uh, cheering. Now that, now that's what we need to hear. <laughs> that's, that's what we need more of in America. Less stupid fan pandering moments, more cheering for seeing a hundred-year-old Harry Dean yeah. Stanton. He fell out of the sky. Did I hurt anybody? Hey, you know, that to be uh, another small tangent before we get fully into the straight story. Um, I won't tell the whole story because I want to save it when we get to more David Lynch. Um, but as Zach knows, I was lucky enough to be living in a college town where they showed eight David Lynch films, one a week, uh, at a very small art house theater. And it was great. And when they played Wild at Heart, which I think was the third out of the eight, they did not go in order. Um, and Harry Dean Stanton showed up. Someone in the audience clapped. Like an older dude clapped for Harry Dean Stanton. And I started clapping with the older dude. And it had to be no more than like 25 people in this theater. And just me and this old dude were clapping for Harry Dean Stanton. That's great. I never heard that story before. Yeah, that was a very minor moment from the whole David Lynch festival thing. How um, is that a minor moment? Wait, wait. Uh, no, wait, he actually showed up in the movie. Was he there in person? No, he showed up in the movie. Oh, I thought he showed up in person. I'm like, no, you're telling no. me the real Harry Dean Stan was there? <laughs> no, and like we came, two people applauded? He came on screen in Wild oh. Apart, and someone clapped, and I clapped with him. <laughs> oh, I'm like, so I think I, I, I Oh, God, like, oh, no, there were... That would be my Facebook profile picture, me and Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> That's what I have to say. And Rob's like, oh, it's a minor moment. I'm like, seeing Harry Dean Stanton's a minor moment. It's like, get out of here, you filthy casual. <laughs> yeah, get yeah, out. It was, it was on screen, yes. Oh, okay. But still, okay. That's, I like where your head's at, sir. You, uh, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you brought my meme to life before I'd even known it happened. Yeah. Uh, too bad I don't have those recorded, so... Oh, well, you'll shucks. have to still, you know, do the uh, the fan edit. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be glorious. That's uh, and, that's gonna be glorious. Oh yeah, and so yeah, that when we ever do more David Lynch, there's tons of stories to regale of me taking to all eight films. Somebody who's never heard of David Lynch, it was great. Um, the Dune, seeing Dune with like 20 people that laugh nonstop was fantastic. Uh, but we'll get to that more David Lynch to come. But I believe Zach, you said before we dive too far into the straight story, did you have a comment on? Lost Highway you wanted to make? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, God, okay. this be, oh, God, this is going to be a tangent. Because I can't, I can't not okay, remind I'm gonna, you of Lost Highway. We'll, and Ro we'll is it about Robert Loggia? No, it's not about Robert Loggia. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, we're, we'll save this. Much like the Terminator series question of about like time travel, I'm going to pose the question now. Okay. Rob can only answer with a yes, no, or maybe. And we'll delve into this question when we get to either... Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive, whichever comes first. Sure. Is Mulholland Drive just a mulligan for Lost Highway? Ooh, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I don't want you. I don't want yeah, you to know, answer I'm gonna, it now. But. I'm going to think about it for sure, especially with my personal opinions on those two movies. That's an interesting one for sure. As Zach knows, I fucking love Lost Highway. I've only seen that once. It's 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 fine for what it is, but then like I saw Mulholland Drive, and I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm like I've, I've got I've, I've got the I've, I've got the good one, so I don't need to ever see this again. 
<laughs> oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, we'll we'll have to remember this for whenever it, the next you know what a hundred more episodes go by and we do another David Lynch. <laughs> well, there's like I said, there's gonna be some David Lynch in April. That's it, it's gonna yeah. happen in April, folks. Whether it's I know my joke is I really want to do a Racerhead on the Star Wars podcast just to freak everybody out. Like I want to just I want to take the oh god the car of a Racerhead just blindside the Knights <laughs> of Vader podcast with it. Like, like I want to go like going like a hundred miles an hour just plow into the side of it and just freak out that audience. I really want to do that. Yeah, that, that and I guess for our audience, this isn't a, a fresh idea. There's even an N in superiority complex cover of everything's fine in heaven preparing for this event. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's again, I really want to do that. I want to blind because that audience is not prepared for it. That is not a much like Twin Peaks Returns episode eight. No one is prepared for the Eraserhead yes. conversation. Um. But yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. All right, after seventy minutes, <laughs> straight story time. This is a, right. this is the first David Lynch we had to get the context out of the way. An insane amount of context. It's gonna be kind of like uh, it's gonna be like two thousands commercials and real scary stories. Like, okay, Rob, we might as well just break off the episode right here and make a second episode <laughs> out of this because. Okay, Rob, what is the straight story about? All right, so the straight story, the. Contents of this movie are, I would say, you know, a little stronger than loosely based on a real event. In uh, summer of 1994, a guy named Alvin Strait found out that his brother uh, had a stroke. He, Alvin, lived in Iowa. His brother lived in Wisconsin. They had been estranged for a while. Uh, this was the inciting event that Alvin Strait felt he needed to go see his brother, but the only way he could do so was by riding uh, his tractor slash lawnmower across the country. This this actually happened. Uh, I think when Zach pitched the straight story, however long ago, I was like, "Oh, I just watched a Mysteries of the Museum where they talked about the straight story." This is, uh, you know, a classic Americana tale, even though it might not be known well throughout the the whole country. I think in the in the Midwest, you know, in Iowa, Wisconsin, places like that, people know this story tangentially at least, and somehow it made its way to the mind of David Lynch, or at least the script about this story made its way to the mind of David Lynch. And that is where we get the basic foundation of this. Old man, his brother has a stroke. He has to get to his brother. So he drives about 300 miles, maybe 250, I think, on his tractor. And he meets a bunch of people along the way. As we were saying before, that's really what this movie is about. It's about the reflection of an aging character dealing with all of these different people he meet, meets on his journey. Whether it be younger people, older people. Uh, cyclists, a woman who can't stop killing deer. Uh, it, it's all about that. It's a really good kind of, it's not even a character study. It's a human study, I would say. Yes, yes, yes. And we're going to have to get into all of these, uh, especially the woman who hits the deer. Like, oh my oh, God. Of course. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> I remember the first, well, we'll get to it. Yeah, the first time I saw that to now, my mouth is always agape at how amazing that, that monologue is. Um, but yeah, but that's uh, the straight story. Disney movie, not on Disney Plus, which is why it fits perfectly for this series. And it just, it was a kind of perfect uh, lightning in a bottle. We had not on Disney Plus, G rating David Lynch. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's one of those weird films that just the, the plans have to align for it to happen. And uh, under any other circumstances, it wouldn't exist. So uh, apparently there's a story uh, I read that in a test screening for this, 
that uh, uh, I guess David Lynch, I think it's something David Lynch tells that he was at a test screening and there was a woman in the audience. And after the film was over and the credits were rolling, she turned around to whoever she was with and she goes, Oh, so I guess there's another director named David Lynch out there. <laughs> and that's what it is. It's, it's so mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. from everything else he's done, but to get the highlights of this film, because again, we could, again, there's not, there's some, there's like, this is like Rob said, I think this film works better as a whole. It's hard to kind of, you know, this film has many little vignettes when Alvin goes from a locale to locale. You could like, again, they are scenes you could really kind of highlight. So sure. I think kind of uh, dissecting them kind of robs them. Like, like I said earlier, uh, this film is greater than some of its parts, yes. but like really kind of the more profound moments to me, I, Again, the in the bar scene where he's sitting there with the other fellow World War II veteran, that was probably the most profound moment of the film for me. Uh, but the, the parts oh, of the yeah. film that really kind of stand out to me is uh, Richard Farnsworth's per- performance. Oh, fantastic! It, yeah, and the um, and the score. I think the score is one of those beautifully haunting scores in that it's just it's so like has so much sentimentality to it, mm-hmm. and there's so much just like bittersweetness to it. It's it's heart wrenching just listening to it. I don't I don't know if I've ever said it on uh, the recording of this podcast, but I'm sure I've said it to Zach many times before. Uh, Angelo Badalamenti is one of my favorite musicians and composers because his music is beautifully sad. It is so sad to me, but it is beautiful at the same time. And that was my first note on this rewatch of the Straight Story. We get the shots of farmland, town streets, the the beautifully sad Angelo Badalamenti music comes in. And I just got those chills. I'm like, oh, God, this is like an early episode of Twin Peaks. Like, I'm just ready. I'm ready for it to wash over me. Well, the weird thing about comparing this, I know, obviously, uh, uh, Badalamenti being a uh, frequent collaborator with Lynch. I think this is a very different score than what he typically does with Lynch because there isn't that sort of just like uh, nefarious nature. Oh, Again, oh yeah, yeah. It there, all has not, that melancholy to it. I got the sense it's, of. It's got. I, I won't even say yes. Melancholy being a big word when it comes to describing a lot of what goes on in this film, but I do. I think it's less melancholy and more of like a bittersweetness to it all. Mm, I right. think. I think that's what because it's, it's not. A, it's. It's a. It's a sad movie, but very implicitly. Yeah. It's, overall, yeah, and, go ahead. I think bittersweet is a great way to put it because you know I'm thinking about. Because, you know, Alvin Straits, his whole motivation, seeing his brother, they're both old. I think, you know, Alvin Strait was like 80 or, or 75 or something when this actually happened. And his brother was right around the same age. You know, his character has that motivation and that background of, you know, time's running out. Like the the facing uh, mortality, that type of thing. And that's where that bittersweet is, where the bitterness comes in. But when he talks to all these other people... That's where kind of the sweetness comes in because he does have such a sense of optimism. And that's where I think this score works so well with it because he's always really like you could tell with Richard Farnsworth's performance, he's feeling it like it's grating on him. I cannot imagine what it would even be like for an older actor to play a role where they're talking about their own death that much. I don't think I would ever be able to handle that. But, you know, he's passing on wisdom and hopefulness to that younger generation. And like you said, it's bittersweet and it, it all gels together perfectly. Yeah, because I do think there's a lot, because on its surface, this film is not a sad, like it has, I'm getting moments of melancholy, but it's not a sad movie. Like it's a genuinely happy ending of a movie. And mm-hmm. that's the, and that's the thing too that I, I remember I could I guess remember the first time watching this being kind of like on the edge of my seat. I, I guess I didn't even mention how I just 
discovered this, but we'll get into that in a moment, was that the first time watching this, you get to the very end where he kind of pulls into uh, a Lyle's driveway and he kind of sits out there and he's just kind of saying, it's this really rundown shanty. Yeah. And he's just like, Lyle, Lyle. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you wait for that kind of uh, like David Lynch-esque, I don't want to say twist, but that kind of trademark ending of like, yeah. oh, it, it was all for naught. What and year then, is it? <laughs> don't, God damn it, Rob, we're going to have to bleep this, bleep that out. You can't give that away. <laughs> no, not, once again, Zach, I don't think there's anything to give away. <laughs> that one line is not a spoiler. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because it's a perfect ending. We'll get, we'll get into Twin Peaks. It is a, really it is a perfect ending. Just like this Rob, is a perfect ending. I don't think Rob and I ever talked about, maybe we have how perfect the ending of Twin Peaks The Return is. And to all the idiots out there that want like a season four. Yeah, never and, on recording. I think when it happened, we talked about it, but never on the podcast yet. I want to get on my soapbox for a second. Is that I hate, hate. If anybody describes Twin Peaks, the return is season three. It's like, no, there's no season three of Twin Peaks. You have Twin Peaks season one and season two, and you have the return, and it ended beautifully. And I could not have, much like, I don't even know what else I could give an example of. I don't think I've ever had, maybe once, one other film, have a more perfect ending than how Twin Peaks, the return ends. Oh, and I love the ending, and I love that immediately once it was over, I went onto Twitter and I started touching myself, reading all the comments <laughs> yeah, yeah, of funny. all the stupid people getting mad about it. And I'm like, oh, oh, this yeah. feels oh, good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, I cannot wait. I don't know. I don't even know how we're going to attack Twin Peaks whenever we get to it eventually, because I love all of Twin Peaks, especially the movie especially the extended cut that's like three hours long oh god no no i, I can't i can't stand firewalk with me i tried that I once love, and i was like no i love that no. movie so much no no absolutely not but no twin peaks the return none of this season three nonsense it's great the return. Yeah, great ending to the return great ending i would say like we said perfect ending perfect ending the straight story it and it it's it's really tough. Like I think that's where you were started. You mentioned like it's tough to find things that have such good endings that cap off the story so well. I think we've talked about it a bunch where it's like, oh, this should have ended, you know, ten minutes earlier. This should have gone on and given us something else a little bit afterwards, you know. But there's some stuff that just strikes that chord. It's a perfect cap, like the cherry on top. I don't I I still don't think Zach's seen it, but I like the ending of Enemy, the Denis Villeneuve movie, that's a great ending. I love that one. And I think that's one of the things where almost, you know, I wasn't on Twitter watching The Return and the end of Twin Peaks to see all that hate. I had to wait till later on to read about it. But, you know, when I watched Enemy the first time and I pretty much stood the whole movie through because it was so enthralling to me. And then the ending happens. I got online and I was like, what the fuck does this mean? Like, what, what, what is this about? And everybody's like, this is stupid. This is dumb. Yeah. And I'm like. No, I'm like, just because it was strange and unexpected doesn't mean it's dumb. Like now I think about the ending of, you know, like Twin Peaks of this, of, of Enemy. And it's like, wow, that fits so well. It's like, you know, there's so many movies that I feel like they put a lot of good stuff into a bottle. And then at the ending, they're trying to turn the screw cap to put it on, but they fuck it up. So it's misaligned and stuff can still spill when you turn it over. Good endings are like a good bottle top. Like they latch on and they, everything's self-contained. It's like what we were saying back in the Avengers Endgame experiment. Isn't the end of something beautiful? Isn't a good finished product beautiful, Zach? I love it. No, 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 no. You gotta make 15 sequels. You gotta keep dragging and that. Then, and then 30 prequels to explain everything in the sequels. Come on, Rob. <laughs> we need the Black Widow standalone movie prequel. We need Moon Knight. We need She-Hulk. We need... 
Blade. We need Nimbusetra. We already had three Blade movies. It's like we just need more content. We need more. We need the Alvin Strait cinematic universe. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I want to. I want to know because that that would make this movie better, right? I want to know more about the woman who keeps hitting deer. Information yes. would make that great. I want to know what happened to the teenage pregnant runaway. Wouldn't that make this movie better? No. Fuck you. The imagination is a beautiful thing if you learn to use it. Yes, I agree with all that. But to get back to your comment, though, about the ending, I don't think it's an issue of a good ending in the sense of, like, I've, I've never, like, it's, or I'm sorry, not, not in that sense. What I was trying to get at was, was the, I guess it's also, again, like I said, how the media has poisoned my mind. Sure. And because the first time I watched it, you kind of wait, and you're like, oh, no, he was too late. Lyle, Lyle's gone, especially mm-hmm. after the comment he has with the, uh, the priest in the uh, cemetery lot. Oh, and, and even before that, when he gets to the town, with the people repairing his um, tractor, and he says something like, how long you been on the road? And he goes, what date is it? And they tells him, I think, whatever date, and he's like, about five weeks. And it's like, oh, fuck. Like, he really has a time limit, and that time limit is, you know, should be thought of. But I think that's the beauty of David Lynch, where, you know, it's not like there's constantly a ticking clock in the background. We get that suspense and that motivation when it is necessary. Yeah. And maybe it's a fact this was based on a true story, maybe not. But like when I was watching this for the first time in 2012, I was kind of like on the edge of my seat being like, like, again, you get poisoned by what the media is kind of telling you and just what the culture is like, okay, everything has to have that bittersweet, not bittersweet, that kind of like sad ending to make it be more of a punch. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't happen, this even kind of happened to me again while I was watching in preparation for this seven years later it was wow like you can still have happy endings like we live in a society nowadays where everything has to have that like like uh oh god now probably not the best example but it's that seven and i guess i'm spoiling the movie seven david fincher seven for people is that you have to, has control <laughs> yeah like it's like it's that what's in the box moment it's like every movie has to have that like twist at the end of like, oh, the good guys are about to win and they lost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And every movie, especially in today's day and age, has to have that moment to make it more realistic, to make it more gr- gritty and visceral. And in a weird way, I still kind of blame The Dark Knight for that when they killed off uh, Mackie Gyllenhaal. I, I swear to God, that film kind of again, I've said it before, I've said it again. The Dark Knight ruined movies. I think to this day, we're still feeling the like kind of ramifications of how much all the wrong lessons were pulled from that film. But as I was watching this, I kind of like figured, oh, you kind of are expecting Lyle to be dead or something to happen where someone comes out of the house. It's maybe it's not Lyle. It's Lyle's son being like, sorry, Alvin. And they're, yeah. they're all dressed in their like funeral attire. They're or wearing whoever, black suit tie. Whoever was talking to Alvin's daughter uh, tells Alvin's daughter about the stroke. Like it would be that, that family member. Yeah. Like, yeah, sorry, yeah. You didn't make it, you know, where's Rosie, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Oh no, there's dread. No, they don't. He does. He knows David Lynch knows or the, Everybody on working on this movie, they knew they didn't need to do that. They just needed to just let it let it taper off very nicely. But that's the, but the point I'm trying to get at though is that like that's the culture we live in though. Oh, like oh, where people are watching this today and they're expecting that kind of like twist of the knife. Yeah, yeah, I, I, okay, I, yeah, I, I understand what you're getting at more now. It's like what I've said. I, I haven't really had this stance or, or discussed it with movies a lot, but I'm pretty sure I've said it on cinemodities before. Like, that's my problem with episodic TV shows these days. It is literally irrelevant what happens for the middle 50 minutes. They just need a big fucking bombshell in the last five. 
to, to make people so people go, oh, my God, I can't wait to see what happens next week. And they don't remember anything that happened in the first 50 minutes because it's all padding and filler because nobody can tell a fucking story anymore on TV. Well, I think it's also the fact of like expectations. It's like the same reason why, like when these idiots go see comic book movies and there's no post credit sequence, they get mad. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I think, I think Rob heard the story, but I don't think it made it onto the podcast. But, like, when we were sitting, well, I was waiting in line for Avengers Endgame when we saw it the second time, and there was a guy with his two kids in front of us, and he's like, no post credit sequences this time, guys. And the kids were like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, but there's a post credit sound. And he's like, what does that mean? And it's like, <laughs> the problem is that and you were so- like, which part of, which part of sound and post credit do you not understand? Yeah. It reminds me of the time I asked someone at a Walmart. I was like, do you sell, like, mini toasts? Like, you ever seen, like, little, like, they're crostini, but they're called mini toasts in America. Oh, sure. Toasts, but they're smaller, like, for hors d'oeuvres. And I said to this worker in, in Walmart, I was like, do, I was like, where would I find, like, mini toasts? And I was in that bakery aisle, and he was like, uh, can you explain what you mean? And I was like, like, imagine a piece of toast, but smaller. And he was like, oh, I don't think we have that. And it's like, what the fuck didn't you understand about mini toasts the first time through? <laughs> but I think the thing that comes down to though is that like it's like expectations. It's like when people are watching stuff nowadays, it's kind of like how you mentioned that they're kind of expecting that like big explosion in the last five minutes. Yeah. People audiences now are conditioned for that awful thing to happen, that that terrible twist of fate at the end of oh, I was so close, just missed it. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of had an example of this in the last few days was that um, on Thanksgiving morning, I was channel surfing and on whatever one of the very few premium like movie channels I still get. I think it's like Encore. They had um, John Hughes's 16 Candles on with uh, Molly Ringwald. And I'd never seen that before. And I, I, I love uh, coming of age stories. I'm like, OK, I'm going to watch it. Just, like it just started. Like it was like I, two minutes I, into the movie. I dig 16 Candles. I haven't seen 16 Candles in years, but I dug it when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah, but as I'm watching it though, and I never seen it before, so I never knew I didn't know what was going on. And again, I've seen The Breakfast Club, but as I was getting toward the end, and I guess spoiler alert for Sixteen Candles, is that I forget the name of the, the character that Molly Ringwald likes, the handsome guy. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, like again, she's kind of uh, uh, oh god, uh, swooning over him for the entire film, and he's trying to find her. And the final thing of the movie is that when she's coming out of the, the wedding, and he's there waiting for her outside the car, and they get into the car together, and they drive away. And the final shot of the movie is um, them, again, again, the whole plot, too, is that everybody in her family forgets her birthday. And the final shot is he gets her a a cake with 16 candles, and she kisses him over the cake, and it's happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching it, I'm kind of, like, ashamed to say this, but it was like, oh, I was expecting something awful to happen where, like, he tries to do something to her or he's trying to, like, just use her for for sex or something. And Anthony Michael Hall would swoop in at the final moment. It's like, oh, the sweet nerdy guy was there all along. And then but that didn't happen. It's like, oh, our protagonist got the good guy, got the guy in the end. And he didn't have any sort of, like dark side to him he wasn't just trying Mm -hmm. to use her he was a guy with good intentions despite the fact he's the handsome popular kid and i I said oh wow like i forgot about that movies could actually have sweet endings not everything has to be cynical and i think that might be the key word here too is that there's no cynicism in this movie Mm, definitely definitely and i think that's the key thing here and i think we talked i forget what movie we were talking about in the last couple of weeks i think it was um dragon blade in that there's no cynicism in this yeah, yeah. Th- there's no cynicism in 16 candles well there is some cynicism in 16 candles but not cynicism as in 
2019 era oh, cynicism. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's another reason why people will probably are turned off by this movie too, is that it doesn't have that. I don't want to say edgy, but it doesn't have that like cynical lining to it. that so many people are just anticipating nowadays. Mm, yeah. I, I would agree completely that expectation of it. You know, it's uh people want to go with what's safe and familiar. And even though they think, Whoa, twist at the end, Nowadays, that is safe and familiar, and yep. that's what they expect. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, and that's coming com- of age. You ever see Saint Elmo's Fire? I have not. I'm, I'm aware of it. Check that. Out. I like that one. That's a good coming of age movie. All right. Uh, but yeah, no, that's kind of like what I was getting at though with that ending, though, because that ending is so specific, and you don't get any sort of uh, what's the word conventional resolution to it because again, Alvin shows up. And he's like, Lyle, Lyle opens the door, comes out onto his porch, and he's like, how'd you get here? And it's like, and we pan over yeah. to, the, to the John Deere tractor. And did it's you like, drive you that piece of junk all the way to see me? Yep. I did, and that, I did, Lyle. Oh, it's great. And then and the next shot is them sitting on the porch in silence, looking up at the stars, which is yep. obviously alluded to that earlier when he's telling, I forget who he is, he's telling. That's what they did when they were kids. And then we pan up to the stars, the uh, the stars and we get the, the score over the credits and it's perfect. Like oh, it's yeah. an absolutely perfect ending. And, and we don't, we get resolution, but we don't get them patting each other on the back being like, well, how are you doing? There's, there's none of that. It's just, he, again, it's a, again, Rob said it before. It's a journey movie, not a destination film. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, like I said, that's the, the team knows they don't need any of that. They, it is about the journey. It's not about destination. You don't need any of that. Oh, well, let's sit down and shoot the shit and get me a beer and we'll drink the day away and talk about old times. It's just like, nope. He had one goal to get to his brother. He got to his brother. Done. Whatever else happens between him and his brother before they die, completely different movie. Completely different story. They don't, they don't deserve to be anywhere near each other. <laughs> but the thing, though, is that the resolution of the film is being painted – Throughout the entire film, because even there's numerous times that Alvin is given an opportunity to to bypass all this. I think somebody mentions at one point him like taking a bus. Another person again yep. at one point somebody offers to drive him there. Oh, I and love he, I, I love that scene where the guy's like uh, the guy's talking to his wife in the uh, small town when he's get Alvin's getting his tractor repaired, and he's like, "Oh, this dude, honey, she he's just he's going all out of his way to see his brother." Blah blah blah. And the woman goes, "Do you want to drive him?" It's got to be no more than a half day. You can drive him. And I'm like, a half day? Like, that's how close he is? But it's going to take him another week? Like, yep. oh, I, you feel it. You feel that motivation. Yep. And that's and that's what it is, though, is that the idea that uh, you don't need the sequence of Lyle and Alvin again patting each other on the back. Exactly. Because, because the the reconciliation is the journey. Mm-hmm. That that's what that's what it is. Is that by showing up, it doesn't matter whether they they make amends. It, well, they do make amends, but it doesn't need to be explicitly shown. It's the fact that he did travel, and even though it's not like one of those stories where he walked on foot from oh god Richmond, Virginia to Portland, Oregon. It's not one of those. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that just the journey is the making amends with him. It's showing out. It's showing Lyle that he that he's willing to make this trek across all the odds across all the obstacles yeah just to see him and that's all that matters it doesn't matter and exactly. that's what i mean and i would imagine right after that happened probably they sat there probably alvin spent the night and then he probably went back to iowa probably <laughs> do we know what happened afterwards did he drive the lawnmower back or did he take a bus back or Ooh, in- interesting uh, we, we i know the the, the um mysteries the of the museum sca- the mysteries of the museum bit ends when he makes it 
So they don't go on to what uh, goes on afterwards. Uh, I'm trying to... Oh, God. Oh, my God. There's so much. I didn't read this. I was looking into the real story a so little bit. So much before. context. Uh, it looks like, just from my quick perusing of this site I have open, uh, that after Alvin makes it to his brother... Oh, a nephew of theirs drives both of them back to Iowa, and they live close together. So they don't. Oh, okay. How about that? Yeah, look at that. Right on. The more you know, folks, the more you know. Alvin, I mean, that's good old, good old Mysteries of the Museum is like once the story ends, they don't give a fuck. You know, it's like usually it's like they they inter, they like have this story about someone and like the end, it'll be like, oh, yeah, this story was amazing, blah, blah, blah. And then they're now they're dead. And then they'll go on to the next segment. And it's like, whoa, that cut off hard. Uh, so Rob, I, I imagine you have a couple. There's only really only one other aspect of the film I want to discuss, but we'll save that after you delve into some of your scenes because I just yeah. Uh, is it the deer woman? No, that's no. <laughs> like I said, I, I don't. I, I don't like pulling apart certain scenes of this because, like I said, I think this film works just as a as a broad stroke as opposed the, to any I, specific element. I agree with you completely. The only one I have issue with is the deer woman, but we'll get to that. I guess I'll go more in order. Um, I wanted to comment on the. You know, as we've been talking about this in my notes and as I was watching it, and like I said at the beginning with a lot of these David Lynch movies, I get this kind of overwhelming sense of sadness. And, you know, like a racer head, even that, the somewhere behind the anxiety I feel when that baby starts to laugh at Henry, uh, is there's some sadness there, you know? And especially, oh God, The Elephant Man is like the saddest movie ever to me. But now that we've talked about it, I'm kind of with you. This movie, sure, it made me feel sad, but I, I'm agreeing with you that this wasn't inherently a sad movie. I think now you're convincing me that it's more of a sentimental movie rather than an intrinsically sad. Because like we've been saying, it's about kind of that looking back on life, telling those war stories, telling stories of your family to younger generations to, so they won't make the same mistakes. It's more sentimental. And while I do love that war story scene, that's a, from both of them, from Alvin and the, the guy he meets in that town who both have some, you know, intense World War II trench stories and stuff like that, or whatever they were in World War II, uh, barracks, I guess. And uh, it's, it's kind of like that hits hard, but something that stood out to me was right near the beginning, you know, Alvin has to go to the doctor. He has the scene with the doctor where he's basically like, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, otherwise you're going to die. And Alvin Strait's just old, curmudgeon stubborn man type of thing. And when he goes back home, his daughter says to him, like, oh, what'd the doctor say? And there's, it pauses for like two seconds on Alvin's face while he's sitting at the table, not facing his daughter. And he, and he thinks, and he goes, he says, I'll live to be a hundred. And you can see that sadness in his eyes because that is not what the doctor said to him. But he knows that's what he has to tell his daughter because that's the persona he's always been put on. Oh, what did the doctor say? He said I was going to live to be a hundred. That's so sentimental. And the reason I'm bringing this scene up is, once again, to bring it back to our, our favorite movie, Avengers Endgame, there is infinitely more sentimentality in the fucking seven words of Alvin Strait telling his daughter, I'll live to be a hundred, than there is in the entire fucking scene between Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man's father when they go back in time. 
Like, I remember, I think we talked about that briefly in our Avengers Endgame thing, where when Tony Stark meets his dad, it's supposed to be this really emotional scene that gives him character growth. Fucking no. That's a useless, <laughs> vacuous scene that's just callbacks to other movies because they were able to get that actor back. Like, they got every actor back. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe Tony Stark realizes a little bit more about his parents. But that is irrelevant. Whether or not that scene happens, Tony Stark still dies and saves the day in the end. Uh, that's kind of, that's what blew me away, I guess, about this movie and about David Lynch or maybe movies of time past in general. There is infinitely more emotion in one line of dialogue than there's an entire scene of a Marvel movie today. And I think that goes back to some of our bigger context where it's just kind of like we talk about that all the time. Zach and I know this is a fact, but for me to see it is always baffling to me. Did you kind of get that sense? I know you highlighted the war story scene and how sentimental uh, that was. But were you kind of well, getting that I, same comparison? Well, I uh, again, not, I think when you're getting at, I'd say all of Richard Farnsworth at yeah, all of Richard Farnsworth's performance in this. Um, oh, sure, there, sure. There, yeah. there is a uh, uh, oh god, a again, not to go back to some of my favorite words, but like kind of like a bittersweet. Like, mm -hmm. I guess, like you said, bittersweet sentimentality is probably how I would describe this film. The best way, bittersweet sentimentality. Because looking in his eyes, and I think Rob, obviously Rob knows the context too, what happened to Richard Farnsworth in real life after the making of this film or yeah, even during to, the film. To add to the sadness of this story. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing is that uh, I'll let Rob tell it though, but I think what he was going in real life, what, what was happening to him in real life. Um, while making this film, mm -hmm. I think translates to just the the beaten down, just kind of like existence of this man. In the sense that, like, you, I don't know how much of a method actor Richard Farnsworth was. I know he was a stunt man. Um, he he'd been around forever before he became like a a actor. And sure. but there is this kind of just like oh god, this um, oh god, I I can't even really describe it. Kind of like this just this tragedy in his eyes that like there's just like these eyes have seen so much over how many years and it's just like you you can feel just the intensity just looking at him there's certain sequences where he's just kind of sitting there yep. and the camera just kind of lingers on his face not all of them but you just you can feel the weight of his eyes you just feel like this this man has seen so much and done so many things i can never even fully comprehend a tenth of it never mind it, it, it uh, uh yeah all of it in its entirety and yeah, I think I think most of this film would not work. Like I know, like we've talked about autorism, not to a great extent on this podcast, more in the context of like probably Kubrick and things like him. Yeah, yeah. But like, I think this is one of the very few times that uh, without Richard Farnsworth, I know there was a bunch of actors they had in mind instead of um, him for this. I think if you take Farnsworth out of this movie, you don't. Uh, this movie doesn't work. I really there's. I, I can't imagine this. Like, I'm not saying those other films, hypothetical films, would be bad. I just don't see them having any of the weight this film does. Because there is this yeah. sort of this real-life sadness and, again, melancholy to Richard Farnsworth's performance, just his look in this, um, that really cannot be duplicated by any other actor at the time. I, I completely agree. And, you know, it probably would have been better said uh, earlier when I mentioned uh, that uh, I— it's always it hits me hard when you know an older actor has to act uh, or play a role where he's very much harnessing you know the facing mortality, and and I like I said I don't think I'd be able to handle that. In actuality, he was not just facing Richard Farnsworth was not just facing mortality from aging. He had terminal cancer. He had prostate cancer while this film was being shot, and 
that they David Lynch, you know, does it plays off that very well. You know, everything, uh, all those scenes where Alvin Strait in this film, he's having difficulty standing up and and moving around. That is that was because he was literally limited in that way. And that's kind of, you know, uh, the the most method of method acting. Pardon the terrible joke about Richard Farnsworth. Um, so, yeah, that kind of just gets amplified. And, Zach, you're totally right. That makes this work. That gives it that depth. And you're right. There's so many scenes where I'm just looking at his face and I'm looking at his eyes and you can tell you can just get so much emotion from the way he just looks at the camera. And it's it's fantastic. It's sad, but it's fantastic. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing of this movie. So you kind of look to him and it's kind of like, again, going to my own history with my own father and kind of looking at somebody who's kind of you look at their face and realize, oh, wow, this person's lived a lifetime. You can see it in their face. Yeah. And it's one of those things you can only get by doing close-ups of certain types of people, because there are people out there that look great for their age. But just kind of between the facial hair, the white hair, just the the skin sagging on the face in certain ways, you can feel, you can see his life in his face. Definitely. And I don't mean Definitely. that in a negative way. I just mean that. I mean that objectively. You can see the the weight of his life in his eyes and face. And uh, you can't get that with a lot of other actors. No, yeah. A lot of other it's... actors would be too vain or to be too much vanity, <laughs> yeah. and they wouldn't allow that to happen. And I think it was kind of this thing of what happened to Richard Farnsworth. I'm not even sure if Rob mentioned it, but right after basically filming this film, he committed suicide because yep. he couldn't take the pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's that double layer of tragedy. And I don't want to say tragedy, but it's kind of like it definitely underscores the entire film that this actor was essentially living this journey. Because they, they also filmed this uh, sequentially. Yep, too wasn't yep. like it. so you really do have a uh, a production an actor that essentially lived the real life events and uh, you can feel it that's the thing too like you you feel this journey it doesn't feel shallow or vacuous you feel like you went on a journey and i think that's something that really it's an aspect of a lot of films whether it be something rather uh, small in scale like the straight story or some even like adventure films uh, on a larger big budgeted scale um, you can feel when a, a production or a, a cinematic event is an adventure. And this is one of those. You feel like, even though this film's what, a little, like, what, 10 minutes, what, 110 minutes? Yeah. That it feels like you went on an adventure. Yeah, that journey feels uh, like uh, an accomplishment almost for for the viewer, for me at least. Yeah, and that's something, not to go back to our favorite punching bag, but after three hours of Endgame, like it, wor- <laughs> it works as a three-hour-long spectacle. No one's going to deny it of that, but I don't feel like I went on an adventure. I felt like I was yeah. watching a movie for three hours. Exactly, 100%. The screen was very deliberately there. There was never any sort of blending of... And I, and by, I guess that's maybe another aspect of Lynch, too, is that he's able to blend the line between reality and the screen. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons we love David Lynch because it's it's immersive. His his media for sure. Yeah, I think that's another why another reason why this film is clearly part of the Lynch canon. It's not just normal, so it can be discarded. Is that yeah. even though it doesn't have again, like we said, that nightmarish imagery, um, it does it, on a very uh, what's the word abstract level. It has every single callback mm-hmm. and a, a God flourish that any other David Lynch would f- film would have just because something doesn't have the blatant call mark, uh, hallmarks doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't have more of the subtle implicit ones. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, that you're absolutely right in this. And I think in the sense that even though we've been talking about how such a sentimental movie, this is and how kind of, you know, maybe sad it made us feel at certain points. Um, it does still have that, you know, very dry, great david lynch wit humor you could call it 
Like, you know, there's that scene where Alvin Strace is driving his lawnmower going, you know, five miles an hour. He comes up on the hitchhiker, the hitchhiking girl to start. And she's got her thumb out and he just there's a shot, you know, drives past her, him going five miles, five miles an hour. And he waves with a big grin on his face. That's hilarious. That's like perfect, dry David Lynch humor. Like this guy's going slow enough he could stop and chat. But he's just like, hello, and keeps going. It's fantastic. The thing with the the deer lady we're going to get to, all those little pieces, you know, it, it adds to uh, that depth, that realism, for sure. There's there's a lot to this. That's the thing about it. Is it is it is. I think that's what makes this film stand out so much in Lynch's canon, is that it does all of his things, but he had to kind of rearrange his bag of tricks. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like a uh, an exercise for him, and he passed with flying colors. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's and that's why again, well, we'll save that more for Cinemati and late night movie status, though. But yeah, it's it's there. This, there's no arguing who made this film. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Ross. Think, do you want do you want to delve into the deer scene? Yeah, I think uh, the deer scene I want to talk about. Uh, we already gave a shout out to Everett McGill, but uh, Ed Hurley from Twin Peaks is the John Deere salesman. Always great to see Everett McGill. Um, and then I also, I didn't know this till researching this, but this was the last thing he was in until Twin Peaks The Return. Yep. So, yeah, right on. Um, I do have to, I don't know if Zach's going to like this, but I uh, there's a scene in this movie where Alvin Strait is camping out with the uh, pregnant teenage runaway, the hitchhiker that I mentioned just a short while ago. And he tells the story about the, the sticks representing family, where he gave you know single sticks to his kids and they were like, can you break it? And they were like, yeah, of course they could break a single stick. But if they put all their sticks together, they can't as easily break it. And that's what family is. And so very sentimental in the movie. Perfect storytelling for what that girl's going through where, you know, the start of Alvin Strait's family journey. Well, that makes total sense. But Zach, do you do you know what Simpsons joke this made me think of? Is there any way you'd remember a Martin Prince <sighs> Simpsons joke? Ah, not top of my head, no. All right, this is a good one. Uh, I don't remember what season or episode, but it is... Um, I hate Nelson's parties. He makes you look at his baseball cards and tell him they're good. They're not good. I don't like him. I'll bet Nelson won't even have gift bags. Unthinkable. Is that legal? Wait, what if nobody goes? He can't kill all of us. He's right. Individually, we are weak, like a single twig. But as a bundle, we form a mighty faggot. <gasps> well said. Do you remember that? Back when Simpsons, no, back when TV no, could don't. use the F word? <laughs> Today's F word? A different oh, F word. Oh, great. I, I, that made me laugh when I was a kid because I think I saw it around the time where, you know, I, was, I learned that faggot was a derogatory term for people, but also an ancient term for a bundle of sticks. Great stuff. And when Al, when Alvin Strait was like, you see all, you see this, you see these bundle of sticks, you can't break them. And I was like, oh, they form a mighty faggot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's that's Rob humor, folks. That's Rob humor uh, concentrated right there, folks. Oh, that's great. That's but a yes, month's now. worth of Rob humor. <laughs> but now we can get into the dear woman. So we've been saying Alvin Strait meets all these people. He helps them. They help him on his journey. You know, they have these discussions. It adds to the story. Um, I am, I've always been very interested in this scene because as Alvin is going down the road, we uh, see a car, like, zip past him. It honks at him. 
he looks, we don't get to see any of it, but we then hear more honking, like a car skid and a crashing noise as just focus on Alvin's face. And as I'm watching it, you know, the first time and on this rewatch, it's like, okay, he's going to, he's going to get to play the hero. He's going to get to help people out, you know, by, by helping them with this car accident type of thing that would make perfect sense for where the story is going. But no, when he gets off of his tractor, when he goes to see what's going on and he it was revealed that the person driving this car was just one woman. She has hit a deer. Alvin Strait is like, can I help you, ma'am? And she goes on a monologue to end all monologues. Like, I put this monologue up there with the Tom Cruise monologue from Tropic Thunder. We are Flaming Dragon. Like, I love this monologue just as much as I love the big dick player, that type of stuff. She tells Alvin Strait a slew of things that she does. And when when the monologue starts, you were like, what the hell is this woman talking about? But it's quickly revealed that she does all this crazy stuff because she hits at least one deer a week on this road. Can I help you, lady? No, you can't help me. No one can help me. I've tried driving with my lights on. I've tried sounding my horn. I scream out the window. I, I roll the window down and bang on the side of the door and play fumbling enemy real loud. I have prayed to St. Francis of Assisi, St. Christopher too. What the heck? I've tried everything a person could do and still every week I plow into at least one deer. I have hit 13 deer in seven weeks driving down this road, mister. And I have to drive down this road every day, 40 miles back and forth to work. I have to drive to work and I have to drive home. <sighs> Where do they come from? He's dead. And I love dear. Oh my God, this is pure David Lynch madness. <laughs> that we have a character who not only tells us that she hits at least one deer a week when she's traveling on this road, but also goes into the details of why she needs to drive on that road. And then we get the great shot of just the fields, because it's flat farmland in both directions, and she looks out, sighs, and goes, where do they come from? It's amazing. That's the best part of the entire sequence, is that, like, like the, you don't really get a sense of it, but, like, because after a while, you kind of get just, like, numbed into, like, he's, again, he's in the Midwest. All this is just flat lands everywhere. Yeah. And she turns around. She's like, I don't even know where they come from. And he's kinda, he looks around, and you realize it's just flat land. There's nothing for them. To, you, you can see anything coming from miles away. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's it's so well done. It's It's pure. You know, I think Zach said it greatly, where this is kind of, like, pure david lynch but he had to rearrange his bag of tricks this is the most surreal thing in the entire movie as far as yep. i'm concerned this woman hitting a deer once a week but so i've i've kind of always thought well what does this add because in the actual context of the movie or the visuals what we get to see she's like you can't help me no one can help me she drives away 
and Alvin Strait uses the deer for food, and then he has the antlers as an ornament on his on his trailer. Which <laughs> I, I, I love that part. Love that. <laughs> that's, I love that. <laughs> yeah, after the campfire scene, we get to see him riding, and he's got the antlers right behind him. Oh, that's so great. It is, yeah. And so I've always kind of thought, well, like, what the what is the point of this? And I've I've come to see it over the years as I just love the notion of really when that woman gets into the reason she needs to drive on that road, like, like through and through, like it's, it's kind of like, it's almost a, I, I guess, you know, this is still maybe not fully formed, but you can uh, play off of it as you wish Zach. Like I'm thinking of the whole family motif, like Alvin and his brother Lyle had an, an estrangement. They fell out. They said some bad things to each other. They hadn't talked to each other in what, 10, 15 years or something. And Alvin's now going on this journey to, to fix that, to mend that bridge. And this woman that he meets goes on this whole thing of like, you can't help me no matter what I do. I have to drive on this road to get to work. I have to do it to survive. And I keep hitting deer and they keep, I keep killing deer. They keep damaging my car. And no matter what I do, it can't happen or I can't fix it. I can't stop it. And I've kind of started to think of that more as the sense of, well, isn't that like kind of, that's what the idea of, you know, maybe the saying blood is thicker than water. Like you should always stick with your family. Like, you know, people say, hey, significant others can come and go. You're only going to have one mom type of thing. Like, why cut that bridge? You're only going to have one brother. And so it's kind of like that is somewhat of a, a motif for family that Alvin has to realize he has to push through. Yeah, he has to drive this road because it's his family. He can't just disown them as he realizes in the motivation for this journey. And he kind of this is the thing to realize that some damage has to be done. You can't just have perfect relationships with everybody all the time. And when there is damage done, when a deer gets killed, you can still make some good out of it. Like he does, he uses it for dinner and he uses it for food. And so something good comes out of that damage, but he still makes that journey. He knows he has to make that journey to stay with his family, even though some pain is caused in the process of it. And that I think is the, is the thing I've just kind of rationalized to myself, how it would fit in this movie. I would love to see if you had any other thoughts or if you agree or disagree with that one, Zach, or if this is something you've never really thought of too much. But this scene has always stood out so strangely. Everybody else he meets has a very specific reason for meeting him and telling his stories, getting told to them. And this one has always been kind of a little out there or uh, unfitting to me. Remember, folks, throw this movie out because it's not like David Lynch's other films. In I know, the garbage. Not, this is too it, normal, right? It, it, too normal. <laughs> throw it out in the garbage, in the garbage. Take your copy of The Straight Story, all like three of you, and throw it in the garbage right now. I'm taking my copy. It's going in the garbage right now. You know what? This scene would have been better if it was just a static shot on this woman's face going, family is important. You need to love your family, even if. It causes pain. It's like the fuck I've said it to Zach before, but the, the ending, the last shot of the office is literally one of the characters explaining the point of the office. Like the last scene of the office TV show, the, the series finale is Pam sitting in the confessional going, oh, when you started this, I thought, oh, what are you going to film people in an office? That's boring. But I guess if you put people together, drama's going to happen. And I literally like said fuck you to the TV. I had been screaming fuck you to the TV for eight seasons of The Office, but if a show at the end of it needs to explicitly state the point of it, you failed as a show. And that's what's normal today. Everybody needs it thrown down their throat, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but, but see, <laughs> that's the amazing thing, that this scene has been, you know, I've, I've watched, I've seen the straight story the first time, I think in like 2011, 2012. I've been watching it a few times since. It's been a while since I watched it 
uh, prior to this recording. And I've always been intrigued. Like this movie makes me think. That's not. That's the farthest thing from normal these days. Yeah, I agree with what you said earlier. Uh, to answer your question from before, uh, I'd say it's the third option. I never really thought of that sequence on that level before, and that's quite profound, Rob. Bravo! I, I never looked at it that way, and uh, that is probably the the as of now probably the ideal way to view that sequence. Okay. Okay. Next time. I uh, rewatch the straight story. I'll think about it some more. <laughs> I do want to say, though, that the equivalent of this, if this was made today, would be uh, to continue to love your family. Please swipe your credit card here. Oh, yes. <laughs> if you want to love your family, swipe your swipe your credit card to love your family some more. Swipe, 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 swipe. Al- Alvin needs three extra days to get to Wisconsin. Swipe your credit card to donate to Lyle's stroke fund <laughs> to keep him alive a little longer. <laughs> Oh man, uh, uh, Alvin needs to sit there pay the, the two brothers. He only has a hundred and something dollars. He needs two fifty. So I have your credit card to help Alvin. Oh yeah, I, I I do. I know we'll have the clip in already, but I do also want to point out that I love the last thing that the woman says she does to to ward off deer. Oh, is yeah. that she rolls her windows down, bangs on the side of the car while blasting "Public Enemy." <laughs> Yeah, if anybody does not remember, Public Enemy is why Flavor Flav is famous. Nine one one is a joke. I I wish we could have got that. Like I wish when she zipped past Alvin, she was blasting Public Enemy. That would have been hilarious. But still, it works. It it's just it so, works it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, that sequence is neat. That's probably the most noteworthy like sequence. Well, when most people talk about this movie, that's the one sequence they point to. Yeah, yeah, I um, I, I dug that one. Um, I really do like the scene where he goes down the hill, where his belt breaks, and he goes uncontrollably down the hill. That's always good fun, I think. Um, I guess I, something I should say is, the first time I watched this movie, and I, I kind of knew what it was about, and I was going into it cold, the thing that I had in mind was, you know, okay, this dude's driving, you know, through multiple states on a lawnmower. What's going to happen? Like, what's what's going to happen when he encounters certain things? And this movie pretty much hits hit everything that I thought of because I was like, well, what's he going to do if he hits a hill? Like, there's no good breaks on that. Like, what's going to happen what, when he has to go uphill? What's going to happen? The thing that they don't do. Oh, the rain. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, what's going to happen if it rains? He has no cover. And they actually do that. And he has just finds a magic barn. But the thing <laughs> they, the thing they never encounter in this movie, which I'm still interested in, is wouldn't a cop like stop him? Like, wouldn't some authority figure be like, what are you doing on the highway? That's the one thing this movie doesn't touch on that. I've always been like, Hmm, why was that cut out? And I don't know in the real story if that ever happened, but you know, that was the one thing where I'm always like, well, wouldn't that happen at some point? Right? Yeah, but that's too mundane though. This is, remember this is, there is a, uh, a little layer of whimsy here. Sure. Sure. That's a and little that's, too grounded. And maybe it, yeah. it wouldn't fit the, because, you know, the cop would have to come at that or the authority figure would have to come at that from the perspective of, you know, like, what the hell's going on? This isn't safe, blah, blah, blah. Where's your driver's license? And that might detract from the message and the journey. Yeah, of what's really yeah. going. I, yeah. I guess you're taking away, like you said, yes, uh, you're taking away from the journey of it all. It's not the real world application of what's supposed to happen. Those sort of sequences has no impact on this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely.
Yeah, you don't need that. That's that's there. Just again, I would imagine there's probably some idiot out there that's probably complaining that there's that that, that sequence needs to be in there. Um, <laughs> or it's it's not you. I mean, obviously, there's always someone saying it's detrimental that we don't have that sequence in there. The law never gets involved. Yeah, but I think it's the attitude too that a lot. It's like he's not hurting anybody. He's going five miles per hour. He's mm-hmm. he's on the shoulder. If I kind of hard, whenever, kind of hard whenever I'm whenever I'm driving anywhere, if I pass someone on a, like a tractor, I've never seen someone on this small of a tractor, but you know, like the big tractors, it's just like, fuck it. Like it's irrelevant to me. Like I'm going to ignore that completely. So I think that makes sense where, you know, yeah. no one's going to be, no one's going to be calling like, you know, nine one one. I just passed someone on a tractor on the road. You know, it's like, that's, no, that's never happening. Every it's farmland country. Everybody thinks if you're, if you got a tractor on the road, you're just going from one field to the other, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I said, and probably his his story probably got out there too. People probably knew he was coming, or I guess like a lot of things, something like that's probably the most exciting thing that's happened in the last few weeks. Yeah, I so think in the, probably in, the, fast. in the true story, I think that like a news outlet picked his story up, and then um, like in the second, uh, the last third of his trip, like people were waiting to see him and stuff when they came through their town and things like that. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a national news story at one point. So yeah, I I, I, do, I who knows. Again, you love to know the kind of the like any sort of David Lynch film. You'd love to know a little bit more about the production of it. And uh, another Lynch hallmark is here that we know very little about the production of this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not a bad thing. Remember, imagination is great, folks. Exercise that muscle. <laughs> uh, I think I think the last thing before I throw it over to what you want to discuss was uh, the one thing that I did take note of. Um, it's not a complaint. It's another. It's like kind of like the cop thing that that never happens. Um, it's interesting to me in this movie that we never see him form any sense of direction. We never see him with a map. We never see him with road signs. It's like he just knows where to go. And I'm not saying that detracts from the movie, but I definitely caught that on this watch through where I was kind of like, well, how does he like, how does he know where to go? Like, he's got to be an exit he has to take eventually, right? (laughs) (laughs) We probably had maps, probably had like one of those like, uh, uh, like, like, uh, I don't want to say an atlas, but something kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I would the geography of of the couple states. I would imagine a hundred percent he has that in the in real life and in this movie. But I was intrigued by we never get to see him with it. Like there's never a small establishing scene with him with a map. You know, it's just yeah. he's riding again. Yeah, I think he probably knows the way. It's probably for the most part direct. He probably knows where to go. It's not. Sure. Probably tr- probably tracks a lot of it by the sun, how far he goes. I don't think I think he's meant. I don't know how smart Alvin Strait was in real life, but in this, he's meant to be a rather articulate, intelligent man. Yeah, resourceful, absolutely. Yep, and he's got yeah. a he's got a damn good grabber too. <laughs> <laughs> Ten dollar grabber. Ten dollar grabber. Oh yeah. I don't know, Alvin. That's a real good grabber. <laughs> All right. What did you have for the straight story? Oh uh, no! I think I kind of said my piece already. It's just oh, okay. that again, I, I think Richard's Far- uh, Richard Farnsworth. I think again, this film doesn't work without him. Definitely, and this really is a once in a lifetime performance. That there's there's just so much weight to him. That uh, like I said, there's certain moments where you could just kind of you feel the intensity without much effort, and Definitely. you really do get kind of the profoundness of it all. Is at the bar sequence again? I think that really is your uh, emotional climax to the film. That it's like oh, Al- at this point, Alvin is kind of sees almost like a. Uh, Oh God, he can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he has a heart of gold, and you realize he this, he, this horrible thing he he's done, and he never owned up to it until that exact moment. And, uh, and that's it. It's kind of one of those moments that even though he comes across as this kind of like ideal human being, even he has skeletons in his closet. Yeah, and it, it adds uh, an extra dimension to the character. 
that you really you didn't think you needed until after you've seen it. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I really did like that scene. That's a that's a very emotional scene, and it works perfectly. You know, it's got the it's got that sadness of um, you know the end of the original um, Romero Living Dead. What not? Yeah, Night of Living Dead, where the the dude gets shot at the end. You know, I, I love that idea where it's like you know he he killed one of his his buddies or something like that, but it was it was an accident. And it, it's just I love that idea where you know the act that he did was intentional, but he didn't intend to kill that person. And that's that's just oh god that that hits me hardcore. I don't know for some reason. But yeah, but I think part of it too is the fact that he never owned up to it. It's the idea yeah, that yeah. that even Alvin Stray, who's this kind of dignified uh, man that we're supposed to be giving him reverence, that even he is not perfect, and he he did a very I don't want to say cowardly because I don't think I think most people would have just sat there kind of said you know what it's the man's dead me owning up to it all it's going to do is get me in trouble. Yeah. But it's the idea that even he shows some level of cowardice and it makes him human. Exactly, it humanizes him in a very specific way, that's uh, very grounded. Yeah, yeah, and the movie never lets up on that. Like, I love that that scene comes later on because it's like you know it, it does it gives it that humanity, and we are constantly reminded that this is a person. Yeah, I think that's yeah perfect. But the one last thing I just want to say before we delve into our questions is um, I was looking because Richard Farnsworth was nominated for an Oscar for this for Best Actor in uh, two thousand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked at the other the other uh, the, what, what the big films were that year, Ooh. and uh, you have Denzel Washington for The Hurricane, Sean Penn for Sweet and Lowdown, oh, Russell Crowe for The Insider. Again, all very memorable films, folks. And the, <laughs> yeah, I think that Rob does not know any of the things he's said so far. <laughs> no, neither does Zach. And but the winner. Is when we both know Kevin Spacey for American Beauty. Ah, of course, the uh, the most prescient film in existence, <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin Spacey defining who he'd be for the next twenty years. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Again, like Richard Farnsworth was never going to win, but it's the idea that at least I guess some recognition because the, the straight story really would be the. Uh, the proverbial black sheep in that category. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. The insider? Har- when you said Denzel Washington and then Hurricane, I was like, what the fuck is hurricane- the Hurricane? Never heard of that. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Biographical <laughs> sports <laughs> drama. Oh. Oh, that's worse than I was expecting. <laughs> Sweet Sweet and Lowdown is a comedy drama mockumentary. Ooh. Sean Penn. Does Christopher Guest have anything to do with it? You know? Uh, Woody Allen. So oh, okay, no. okay, okay. John Waters is in it, though, so go Ooh. figure. Right on. And uh, The Insider with Russell Crowe is a uh, a fictionalized account of a true story. It's based on a 60-minute segment about Jeffrey Wigman, a whistleblower in the tobacco industry. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. And obviously, we don't need to say what uh, American. Let's see what American Beauty is. Let's see how they. Oh my God, it's like sixteen paragraphs. A uh, guy wants to buy weed from his neighbor, but a military dude thinks that buying weed translates to blowjobs and kills himself. Right? <laughs> somebody <laughs> kills somebody in that movie. I think. I like the fact if you look to Wikipedia and you go to like the reception 
like critical reception portion of the article, there's yeah. actually a subsection for decline. A few months <laughs> after the film's release, reports of a backlash appeared in the American press, and, has, and, and in years has since seen a critical regard wane. Okay, I've only ever seen that once, and I I didn't I was pretty neutral on it. From what I, remember. I like that. In the decline section, it says, even without the overtones to Lester's character created by the 2017 sexual assault allegations against Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> Jacobs notes his attraction to Angela is problematic since while the film recognizes it as an unhealthy in part, it also eroticizes her. <laughs> wait, wait, you're... T- doesn't he decide not to have sex with it though at the end? No, Rob, Rob, it doesn't matter that he chooses not to. It's the fact that it eroticizes her. Yeah, he, he did. He had a fantasy... Uh, in his brain, and they called the thought police on him, definitely. Yes. Remember, folks, <laughs> if you ever think something naughty, someone's going to come and like, tie you to the stake and burn you. Let's make another straight story. Yeah, I'd be damn. I want, I'm I want gonna, I'm gonna visit mentality you. like this. Yeah, I'm going to visit you in Colorado. That's what we're going to do, Rob. <laughs> Rob's coming to New York in a couple of weeks, so look forward to that, folks. But what I'm going to do is, because I already told him, neither one of us can be in the same state at the same time, except when it comes in 18-month intervals. <laughs> so I'm going to ride my lawnmower to Colorado when Rob is in New York. I think I'm going to be in New York when this airs. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. I have, I'm going to ride my push mower. I'm going to ride the push mower. Perfect. Perfect. I like it. Yes, yes, Zach's with the push mower, definitely. Ride the like, push mower. Oh my god, the beginning of that movie is my dad going, I have a better mower, Zach. You want this? Nope. Need the push mower. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta do it my own way, man, Andrew. <laughs> oh god. Yeah. All right, Rob. Any other questions or comments, or can we move on to our questions? No, I, I think the, the one note I just found, it was a small note, I skipped over it. Uh when Alvin first starts his journey. We get a a great shot where it starts on the ground and like we see just the uh, the yellow lines in the middle of the road slowly passing by and it pans up to Alvin on the lawnmower, you know, you know, going five miles an hour. It's the slow version of Lost Highway. Remember the beginning of Lost Highway is all the fast yellow lines? Oh yeah. This is the slow yellow line. So I definitely Isn't there some of that in Mulholland Drive too? The uh, the winding road near the beginning, I believe. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. This film needs more Winkies Man guy. <laughs> Don't tailgate ever. That's a lost. That's Robert Lotion lost highway. <laughs> we'll we're we're going to insert the entire clip from the Winkies Winkies Diner in here right now. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. That's it. So, you came to see if he's out there. to get rid of this god-awful feeling. Right then.
God. Love. We love us some David Lynch, folks. If no, you no. If you couldn't tell. No. no. I, was, I was thinking about it. I'm like, wow, I haven't watched Mulholland Drive in a while. And I like, remembered Winky's Man. And I'm like, oh, nope. yeah, that's, nope. Yeah. Don't need that. <laughs> Have that thought now in my head. Don't need that thought. Not sleeping tonight, folks. I guess I, you know, I didn't even get. I think I've. I'm not sure if I ever told the specific. I'm not gonna get into it now, but have I ever told the story about like a racer head and like how I wasn't able to sleep for like two or three nights in a row because of it? I think to me, not on the podcast. Yeah, I think right, I, we'll that see. sounds familiar. Yeah, we'll we'll have to build that up big for the Star Wars podcast. Like there, there <laughs> better be nothing. Nothing big better happen in April because that's gonna happen. We need to, we need to celebrate. That feels icky. We need to commemorate. The uh, ten year sure. and that's better. Commemorate is a lot better than celebrate. Commemorate the ten year anniversary of Eraserhead. Oh yeah, oh yeah. April, April twenty twenty, folks. We will get to it, and it has to be on the Star Wars podcast, just so I can blindside <laughs> them, and so we can create a Cinematis uh, Facebook group where you people interact with us. Knights oh. of Vader. They ha- that audience needs to be hit as hard as humanly possible with the reality of Eraserhead. I got no complaints. I'm I'm already I'm already ready to help out with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Rob had to figure out how to make people listen to the episode after 10 p.m. It's a late night discussion. If you try listening to it yes. during the day, it'll it'll burn your phone out. It'll actually your phone will blow up. Yeah, Zach. Every week, Zach's like, "Are you sure you don't want to even like 20 minutes talk about the Mandalorian?" And I'm like, "A racer head, a racer head." <laughs> like, don't yo show me Baby Yoda. Show me the baby. <laughs> oh my god, that's. No, that's a clever idea. Tell me, mention the Baby Yoda in the Star Wars podcast. Play the baby crying sound for Racerhead. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to do a cut like that of the Mandalorian with Baby Yoda with the baby crying for the race. Someone needs to do like insert the audio, like the Alex Jones thing. Oh God, that's great. <laughs> All right, Rob, we'll have to work on that this weekend. The straight story, cinemati and or late night movie. Um, all right. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff I was going to say for Cinemodity and Late Night, we've already discussed. So this will will kind of be a summary. Um, for Cinemodities, I went with a definitely. I think this is so purely David Lynch. The whole reason of the, you know, this being the normal David Lynch movie when it's just him mixing up his bag of tricks. That's a great way to put it. I think that's how I'm going to describe this movie from now on, Zach. Uh, so definitely to Cinemodities. It's purely David Lynch. It's a great story sentimentality, all that stuff. Late night, I'm going 100%. It's not very often we have something that I think is a, uh, as, as sentimental or as sad or as possibly depressing as this can be. And that's something we don't usually get. Uh, I don't usually get as a late night movie. So I would love to kind of throw that out there, kind of have those kind of discussions. And, you know, there's, there's those times, you know, nights usually go different ways. You can Yet late at night, you're intoxicated, whatever. You might be getting crazy. You might want to laugh at something, have all these giggle moments, or it could get a little more, you know, introspective. And I think it would be great. As I've said, I love reactions and conversations during late night movies. Um, it it might not be an every night late night movie or a concept to talk about, but I would love to, you know, discuss some of those aging concepts with people. That's like I said, that's what I love. True late night movies for me is when I get to show stuff to people and we get good discussions and reaction from it. And I don't think we have anything that really fits the bill with these topics and this sentimentality yet. So definitely to Cinemodities, 100% to Late Night Movie. Uh, yeah, I agree for Cinemati for all the aforementioned reasons. Late Night Movie, I think this is a genuine crowd pleaser. I think you could show this to pretty much anybody. I'd say over the age of 10, and they would appreciate it wholeheartedly. I don't see how anybody could watch this and dislike this film. Um, in, in both a normie sense and in a David Lynch fanaticism yeah. sense, I think this is a, a practically a perfect film. 
And uh, I, I think this is one of those few films that you could throw give to pretty much anybody, whether it be a late night movie, a post Thanksgiving meal movie. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. It's it's almost as bizarre as it may sound. David Lynch, the most uh, oh god eclectic filmmaker possibly in existence, has created the a film that anybody can enjoy. Yeah, without yeah, reservations. It's, it's really kind of surprising. <laughs> it's shocking. It's genuinely shocking. I think that's why it's also cinematic. And yeah. it's probably the only one of the very few films in existence where you can show it to any audience and it's not pandering to any one bike age group. Like think about it. yes, there's movies like you could put Toy Story on for somebody or for any group and people anybody can appreciate Toy Story. But there are some people out there that won't appreciate like some of the more juvenile aspects of it. Or you think of something like Star Wars and it's like, okay, some people just don't like space fantasy. But I think this is one of those things where this film has pretty much something for everybody. I don't I think yeah. this is a film that anybody that's that has some logic. I said children maybe on sing, like single digit age children maybe not just because that's that's hard to do, but um, I think for anybody who just understands what it's to, what it's like to be a human being, um, can pull something from this for themselves. Exactly. Do you do you think that this was a uh, being the first uh, Lynch film we've ever discussed on Cinemodities, and um, David Lynch being one of the the first series we have listed in the spreadsheet when we were <laughs> writing them down? Um, do you think this was a good start with it being so accessible? I am glad you brought it up, Rob, because I'd be I'd be remiss if we didn't touch on this. Was that back when I was uh, in college, film studies minor with my cinema professors? I because again they they I always thought my obsession was with David Lynch. In reality, it was very uh, low key Stanley Kubrick, and they and they picked up on it before me. Sure. And uh, I remember talking to the female professor, and she's like, uh, I've, I talked to her, I'm like, oh, like the first David Lynch film you should try to indoctrinate somebody with. And I'm like, oh, it should be Blue Velvet. And she's like, no, you're absolutely wrong. It's the straight story. Mm. And uh, ever since then, because again, you, it kind of does get lost in the shuffle of, of David Lynch films. And I do. I think if you're ever, I think it's kind of maybe the only argument you can be made against it is that it's very misleading because even though it has all the hallmarks of David Lynch, the rest of his canon goes in a very different direction. Yeah, uh, for the most part. But no, I think if you do show this to somebody, I think that's the only thing, though. I think it's I, I agree. It's the first thing you should show people. Um, but at the same time, though, you do have to warn them that it goes in a very different direction almost immediately after this. Yeah, yeah, a absolutely. I would agree. Um, I I think also with this discussion and rewatching it again after the first time in you know a while uh, when I've rewatched other Lynch movies more recently than this one. I'm glad we did it, this being the first one. I'm glad it kind of was almost a happy accident with how this series worked out um, and it not being on Disney+. Plus. I would be remiss, though, if uh, I thought for a long time I was going to try and get us our first David Lynch thing we discussed to be rabbits. Now I know it can't be that. So oh, maybe that'll geez. be the second. I fucking love rabbits. Oh, God, I can't stand I don't, stand. Know, I I don't know if Zach uh... knows this, but I put rabbits on for somebody once, and, like, rabbits is, like, what, 40, 50 minutes or something like that? And in like the first two minutes when like the, the male rabbit in the suit comes in, says some non sequitur, and then there's like a laugh track and a thunder boom, the dude with me said, things like this make me think there's too many people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I hate you. You haven't even seen the whole thing yet. And he was like, but does it change? And I'm like, there's some poetry. <laughs> Rob, that's even that, even for me, that would be, that's, that's a... That's a doozy. 
something's wrong. Siren. Dark, smiling teeth. Moving wing fingers. Smoke, oil, Rabbit understood. I love rabbits so goddamn. I'm glad you like rabbits, but that's uh, (laughs) a that's steep to expect. Like that, that'd be steep for me. Never mind for a normie. That's way in the deep end. Yes. (laughs) Oh my god, that's a. Oh god, yeah, that's. (laughs) I I, so I've heard. (laughs) All right, Rob. Right, snack. Oh man, this was a for me. I, I would imagine for you, Zach, because I think food does play not a major role, but we do yes, get to see some food here. in here. I got some snacks, man. And I want to start with a food that is shown off in the movie that I actually really love. And I ate a, I've eaten a bunch of in my life. Good old Braunschweiger. Oh, let me get watch. the scene. Yeah, yeah, of course. People, it's well, Braunschweiger for the fancy people like me that worked in a deli for 10 months. I think I worked longer <laughs> than 10 months. Uh, but <laughs> liverwurst is also what it's called. I love this stuff. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's kind of like a, a meat pate. Um, it goes great on, you ready? This is why I brought this story up earlier. What I would do when I worked on the uh, worked at a deli in college is, since I got a discount, I would always like, you know, buy Braunschweiger because that's a little more expensive and I get my discount. It was great. You get Braunschweiger, you get a little piece of it. You put it on top of a mini toast, like a little crostini with a pickle slice. So it's a mini toast, Braunschweiger, and a pickle slice. Holy shit, this stuff is so good. I love it. Do you like liverwurst? Do you like Braunschweiger? 
I've never told. Okay, I have a very specific liverwurst story. I think I have to tell. I'm, okay, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I know the your liverwurst. Story. Yeah, the liver. <laughs> I told the story a couple of times now. Was that this was years ago? It's gotta be almost close to twenty years ago now. Was that my father? I think it was like a Christmas vacation in like two thousand or two thousand one. Um, my father, my father loved liverwurst, and one day he was making me lunch, like, especially during Christmas time when my mother wasn't packing me a lunch to go to school. And he's like, "Oh, I have some liverwurst. Do you want to try it?" And again, me being a kid, I'm like, "Liverwurst, nah." And he's yeah. like, "Well, let me make you a sandwich and see if you like it." And my father always knew how to make a good sandwich, and so he's such a rye bread. He put, he did the works: liverwurst, again, mayonnaise, oh, cheese. Okay, my dad would do rye bread, liverwurst, and uh, mustard instead of mayo. Okay, well, again, to each his own. Yeah. But it's he do that though, cheese, and he really docked it up, and I loved it. I thought it was great. And then uh, a day or two later, we ran out of all those things except the liverwurst. So then he proceeded to give me for lunch one day. And keep in mind, I was maybe eight years old, maybe nine. He then gave me liverwurst on a hot dog roll with mayonnaise. Oh, and, oh my god! Yep. This yep. Is, I'm just imagining like an uh-huh. old school Tumblr post that goes, like, like how broke have you been? What have you eaten? And a picture of what you just described. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, I think, but you can kind of gauge by Rob's laughter, folks, that after then I can never eat liverwurst. Never eat it again. My father ruined me for liverwurst oh, after god. that because he literally gave me a hot dog roll with mayonnaise and liverwurst on it, and yeah. never again. Mayo sounds so weird to. I never would do a. Uh, to be fair, I never did sandwiches out of out of liverwurst. Braunschweiger. I would always do those little like hors d'oeuvres on the mini toast sure. that I was describing. But I can't imagine putting a sauce or a condiment like. Liverwurst itself is already a little, you know, pasty. It it doesn't really need anything to add moisture to it, like you would want from a mayo or something. Liverwurst on a hot dog roll with mayonnaise. Okay, so so I I think this this with that story and my story, we I, I didn't know that we were both going to have Braunschweiger stories. We have this item, the Braunschweiger item on the menu. And when you order it, you know, it's like, oh, I'll have the, uh, I'll take the Braunschweiger platter, the Braunschweiger dish, whatever, from uh, the straight story. And the waiter's going to have to go, would you like the Rob version or the Zach version? (laughs) And if they get the Rob version, they get this kind of appetizer type of thing, which is, you know, the mini toast, Braunschweiger, slice of pickle. If they order the Zach one, they get the uh, the abomination your father created. <laughs> I want on record. I'm not even offering this for the restaurant. That was just a a personal well, too, too late. You, I, it's been oh, absorbed okay. into my brunch bunker. Okay. Oh yuck, <laughs> yuck. I mean, I don't. Oh. I, 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 we are sadists at the Cinemati's restaurant. Even there, that is like a bridge too far. It's like no. I, I wouldn't eat that. Oh yeah, we're gonna look at the uh, the data after a week that this is on the menu, and we're gonna see that a hundred percent of people order the Rob. Braunschweiger <laughs> and zero ordered the Zach Braunschweiger. Yeah, and then yeah, we're gonna no. yell at our wait staff because we are not supposed to tell the customers which ones which. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, but yeah, I guess I'll right before Rob goes into his uh, rant about food items. The only other one I have I recommend for the restaurant is uh, we offer Miller Light in milk. We offer we offer glasses of milk, <laughs> and we offer what you get one bottle of Miller Light. One the, bottle. The, you know, uh, the, I'm so glad you bring, ass. I'm so glad you bring this up because in that scene when Alvin goes in the bar and he's like, I haven't had a drink in a very long time, but now I'm mighty thirsty. And he's like, what's your flavor? And he goes, I'll take one of those. He's like, Miller Lite tastes good. I was every time I watch this movie, I'm just dying. I'm praying to the God I don't believe in for the bartender to go. 
Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> I think that would be like, I always want that to happen so bad. Fuck Miller Lite. Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Rob, do we have to, do we have to insert that now? A, 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 a super cut of I was, uh, honestly, that sequence with, with yes. Frank. I was thinking about this when I, when I was watching, making my notes for this movie. I was like, I feel like I've yelled Paps Blue Ribbon a, a handful of times, a good handful of times on the podcast, but we've never included the clip, I don't think. So I got to go dig that out because that's, that's like one of my favorite clips of anything ever. I haven't had a drink in a lot of years, but now I'm going to have me a cold beer. What flavor? What does a Miller's Light taste? Fuck that shit! Pabst Blue Ribbon! You know, it's really funny you mentioned that. I remember my sophomore year of college, there was a kid who was in my um, suite, and he loved Pabst Blue Ribbon. And I'm kind of surprised I never brought that up. I never did. I, I'm surprised I never connected the two. I, I, uh, my buddy in Ohio used to drink it all the time because it was cheap as shit. Sure. And sure. It, sure, it sure tastes that way, too. And uh, I, I, every time he would order a, a PBR, I'd be like, Pabst Blue Ribbon! Fuck Heineken! And you had to have no idea what I was referring to. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't do that. Like I had seen Blue Velvet by that time. It wasn't that long ago, and I'm surprised that I didn't do that back then. I'm a little disappointed in myself now. <laughs> Tune in to I don't know whenever we review Blue Velvet, and Zach and I will probably discuss that one scene for 30 minutes. <laughs> I haven't watched Blue Velvet in a while, so oh, that that'd be a scene like that. That's forget, the first I scene a lot where. About it. That's the first scene where, like, Kyle MacLachlan and Dennis, like, he gets captured, you know, for lack of a better sure. term, by Dennis Hopper. And you can, like, that whole thing, like, Dennis Hopper's totally in control. And, you know, you can see the fear in Kyle MacLachlan's face. And he's like, what do you drink, Kyle MacLachlan? He's like, uh, Heineken. Fuck Heineken! Bat Blue Ribbon! And it's just like, <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan's just like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to die. This is where I die. And, oh, it's <laughs> fucking great scene, man. <laughs> All I remember from Blue Velvet is... Mommy? um. Mommy? Well, y yes, of course. <laughs> um, not even that specifically. I, I remember like man having like a stroke in the like while watering the like the plants. Oh um, yeah. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan in the closet. Oh and then, yeah. And then Isabella Rosalini naked on someone's front lawn. Mm -hmm. And then, like, Laura Dern in tears. That's it. Like, that's all I remember from Blue Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> I had the idea of Isabella Rosalini naked on someone's front lawn. Because I think I'm pretty sure every time I watch the film, I have the exact same reaction of, uh, huh, how about that? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I, that's I actually, thing that happens. Oh, yeah. I rewatched Blue Velvet um, maybe two months ago because um, I find a lot of similarities between Blue Velvet uh, thematically. Not any any other way, but thematically between Blue Velvet and Under the Silver Lake. And after I watched Under the Silver Lake twice, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is actually reminding me of Blue Velvet." I went back and rewatched it, and so yeah, I got it fresh in my head. I fucking love that movie. That scene in the beginning where he's talking to the girl, and he's like, "I found this ear in the field," and she's like, "What are you? What?" And and he's like, "I found an ear. I need to know who it belongs to." And she's like, "I thought I thought we were gonna like talk about something else." <laughs> And he's like, no, let's go break into this house and find out who this ear belongs to. And she's like, what? What are you saying to me right now? Oh, it's so good. So fucking good. Perfect first date, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I found this ear. <laughs> ah, blue velvet. But we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it one day. Yes. Uh, hopefully. Or, or definitely. It will be one day, you know. For sure. All right, Rob. So what snacks do you got that don't All evolve right. the worst? The Braun Schwager's out. Uh, I got two others. Oh, no. Oh, well, well, two 
three. Oh god. Oh god. I think they all come. I, was about to, I think they all come right from the movie. So we get a great scene of just Alvin Strait riding his lawnmower, just you know, driving along on the open roads. There's a big field in the background, and he reaches behind himself where he's got a little, uh, like a little. It's like a toolbox looking thing, but it looks like it's homemade. Like it's just a a wooden crate or something like that. You know, it's a storage on the back of his tractor. He's driving his tractor five miles an hour. He reaches behind, pops up this lid, pulls out a random sausage, and starts eating it. So I just want I just want random sausages hidden around the restaurant. You are. <laughs> and but here's the thing: this goes into another December Plus episode we talked about. To make this viable, we would need to hide meat that doesn't need to be refrigerated around the restaurant. <laughs> so what do you think about like just Slim Jims hidden everywhere? Oh and they're boy. the random oh Slim Jims that if you find one, you can go ahead and eat it. Here's the other thing, Zach. They're all previously unwrapped. Oh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt watching this movie. He pulls out a fucking unwrapped sausage from a wooden box and starts eating it. So why can't, you know, if, if we have a, like a people sit down at a booth at the Cinematis restaurant, and one of them, you know, as they're kind of maybe sitting down and shuffling along the booth, uh, to make room for more people, their hand actually goes accidentally goes between two seat cushions, and they find a Slim Jim. They're allowed to eat that Slim Jim. It's like the Cinemodity scavenger hunt. What do you think? Sure, Sausage. sure. Sausages but, around but, the restaurant. But I do. But I do want. I want to name it. Eat your wiener, Missy. Eat your wiener, Missy. That's what he says, right? Is it, he does, it yeah, dog? he said. I think he says eat your. It's either eat your hot dog, or eat your wiener, but. She's like, you driving around in this piece of junk? Eat your wiener, Missy. <laughs> that's what we call it. That's, I that's that, what it's called in the restaurant. Yeah, I like that. And I think that goes along, that could possibly tie into my next thing. Um, in my snack portion of my notes, in all caps, I just wrote the words, cooking wieners with sticks. Yes, yeah, son. And so, you know, maybe I, this is kind of where I was thinking, since we have an infinite void of space in our restaurant. Boy, do we. Why don't we have the option for some people to get a table mm. that has a fire pit in the middle of it? Like we let them do a little kind of campfire experience and they can cook some wieners with sticks. Before you answer that, if you like that or not, Zach, have you ever cooked wieners with sticks? I have you not, Rob. That? I have only done it once. They weren't truly sticks. They were like cheap skewers we bought at a grocery store when we, get, when we went camping in um, – Allegheny National Forest, I think, somewhere in Pennsylvania. And it was good fun, you know? I had we I took a wiener, put it on a stick, put it on the fire. <laughs> you like that, Rob? I'm just no, I'm laughing now more at the fact that we just had like a solid two and a half hours or two hours of like deep analysis of this movie. And now I'm talking about cooking wieners, wieners on a stick. Only on cinemodities, folks. But but I think more of the idea that I was going for it was a kind of campfire motif in the restaurant. And this would be the delineation. We would have non-smoking, smoking, or campfire. Or right? campfire. Yeah, because, because if you want... Everybody, sure, I get it. If you don't want to breathe secondhand smoke, one cigarette is the equivalent of like a building burning down for some of these people. But <laughs> no, like, like a, a fucking campfire is way worse. Like we need to make segments of this because you know the non-smoking fine. Everybody's happy. Smoking. If anybody gets a whiff of smoke, it's like I'm gonna, I'm gonna yell at you. I'm gonna give you a bad Yelp review. And it's like 
The fucking food's burning. It's not cigarette smoke. Shut up. It's all going to give you cancer. Just fucking breathing is going to give you cancer these days. And then we have the campfire section where basically all rules are off. Like we give everybody raw food and sticks and, and they have to light their own fires. <laughs> oh, boy. And maybe oh, since boy. it's an infinite void and we've already established that there's a lot of travel back and forth from the restaurant and reality or civilization, you know, they can camp in there. You know, right? Just set up a tent. Maybe, oh, we, we upcharge tents. We sell them tents and we up. We, oh, God, this is great, Zach. We have a whole camping segment. Are you oh feeling God. this? Are you feeling this in the restaurant, Zach? I'm trying I, to. I, we got a void. We got an infinite void. Oh, no, Rob. I, I am not feeling it. You don't like. You don't like. What about. What if we changed it from camping to glamping? Would you glamping. like that better? Uh, uh, I, know, I don't know. Yeah, but I don't like. like any, I don't like any amping. <laughs> any amping. Unless it's tube anything. <laughs> there we go. That's more like it. Oh, so yeah, I was I was getting hardcore into the campfire cooking wieners with sticks, man. Okay, we'll think about that. Zach will think about that. Maybe um, when I'm in New York right now in the dead of winter, Zach and I will go camping in my parents' backyard. What do you think? No, absolutely not. You don't want absolutely. You don't want to sleep in negative degree weather. <laughs> I do not. I, do, oh. I don't like forget glamping. I don't even want any sort of anything. Sure, sure. Uh, another food item we get is, uh, it's not even a food in the show, uh, in the movie, I mean, but um, one of the shots we get of a car that is driving the opposite direction of Alvin Strait just has a giant cob of corn on the back of it. Ah, uh, yes, son. So, giant corn. That was all I wrote down. Just a fucking huge piece of corn. Like, way too big. But once again, we have an infinite void. How many giant ears of corn can we put in an infinite void? An infinite amount. Fantastic. <laughs> and, and, and the other thing is, even though we have these infinite amount of giant corns, it's only for our restaurant. Like, you better believe I want the picket line of people outside going, you could save the world. You could stop world hunger by just giving people giant ears of corn. And we're going to go, fuck you. Pay us. <laughs> 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 and the last snack I have... I honestly thought this was going to be one that Zach and I had. Uh, I was going to steal from Zach, but he went through all the snacks, so I'm glad I get it in here. The woman who keeps hitting deer, we hire her. We <laughs> hire her to kill deer so we can serve venison at the restaurant. Cool. Yeah, and so we just get her every week. She kills however many deer. We get them at the restaurant, and we could do you know uh, venison steaks. We could do venison jerky. We could use every part of that deer, as I'm sure Alvin Strait did. And then the antlers. We can have a bunch of antlers in the uh, in the restaurant too. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, are you a venison fan, Zach? I don't think I've ever had venison. Oh, okay. I uh I do like it for the most part. Uh, I've had it once or twice in a restaurant, I would say. But years before I met Zach, my dad uh, brutally murdered a deer with a bow and <laughs> cooked it up. How about that? Yeah, we cooked it up. He's only gotten one deer ever in his life hunting and we cooked it up we had some venison everything like he took it to a smokehouse they cooked it up in so many different ways and it was really good so i think i like that more just for the the uh, uh experience because if anybody who's ever hunted knows you don't just kill the animal and it turns into food you can eat you have to gut it and i was there for the gutting of this animal i watched my dad good take Lord. all its fucking guts out and shit like that it was great there actually is a home video of this zach maybe we'll cover it on cinemodities one day uh, is there really is yeah there really? yeah i literally videotaped my dad gutting a deer and i remember the smell and what i said the insides of this deer 
smelled like Chinese food. Dead serious. Dead fucking serious. Like tons of peanut oil and MSG. When this fucking hot deer's carcass got cut open and its fucking organs fell out, which is all on video, it smelled like Chinese food. And I say oh that my gosh, when I'm no. like 12 years old. <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of any of this. So, uh, you We're know what, folks? Hardcore I'm, I'm, backstory. This week. I, I already have the lawnmower out. I am making my way to Colorado to avoid <laughs> having this, to see this video. <laughs> Yo, that's going to be the most ridiculous thing if, if we're hanging out with my dad and, and you're going to be like, what? There's a deer video I should see. And I'm like, oh, yeah, dad. Remember that? He's probably going to have it ready to go. <laughs> I'll be I'll be like, no, I don't want to see this. All right, Rob. So how are we going to wrap this episode up? OK, uh, I think Zach's not going to like this either. I would uh, love to take some of the uh, there's there's one theme in this that gets reused maybe two or three times, which is just the. Uh, uh, the walk, or not the walk, but the traveling theme, I guess. Like when we have long shots of just Alvin and the lawnmower going through and, you know, farm stuff and, you know, the big sprawling landscape shots, we get this one theme. And I was really tempted to say that I wanted to use that in reverse. But at the same time, since this is our first on Cinemodities, we have never had the glorious opportunity to discuss the other music David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti have done together. And I would like to play some of that in reverse as well. Keep it the if... straight story, buddy. Oh, I know. I knew that was what you were going to say. Keep but... it the straight story, buddy. No, if, if we're able to pull from other things, that means anything that involves dancing automatically pulls the 18s forward. So. That's true. Okay, that's true. Zach just made a great point. If I open my door, I'm opening his door as well. Exactly. And, and then every I'm... movie will be dancing. Every, every movie will involve dancing, thus 18s will come yeah, to the yes. conversation. Okay. So we'll keep it on. Uh, straight story for sure. I like that. Whenever we get to Industrial Symphony Number One, we'll do some of that. That Thought Gang stuff. Of course, the Thought Gang stuff, my favorite. Jack paints it red. Now imagine that for four minutes. <laughs> I know I'm excited, folks. That's a, that's, that was one of my top 50 from last year, that song. <laughs>